episode 277. I'm your host, Jonathan Metz, and with me as always is Greg Leahy. Ahoy, ahoy, everyone. James Jones. Due to acoustic reasons, I am podcasting from bed. And John Lindemann. Jonathan, gentlemen, it is a pleasure to be here. Come on down. You're the next contestant on Radio Free Nintendo. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, we are here for yet another podcast for your listening pleasure. We thought for a little while we were kind of debating whether we wanted to do retroactive this week and decided not to. Decided to give ourselves a little more time to play. It is a, a longish game and uh, uh, give everyone else at home, of course, more time to play as well. So we're going to plan to knock that out in one big go next week. So it will be the majority of the show, I assure you. Because the, the forum thread has been quite active, and there's a lot of interesting stuff there, and I'm sure we'll all have a lot to say about it. So that will be the focus of next week's episode. This week, instead, we have a really interesting feature coming up for you in the second half of the show. Uh, this was Greg's idea. We're going to talk about our video game bucket list, the games that we always wanted to play and still haven't. So uh, the games that at some point we would like to get around to playing. Some of them might be pretty old. Some of them may be a little more recent. John doesn't – we don't have time for John's Yeah, my, my, my list will be exclusively from like the last year uh, of games that are on my shelf. <laughs> okay. can, we, can we have one for John that's like games that I haven't already bought kind of bucket list? Like just to narrow it down a just little right. bit. If you own it's it, it doesn't count. Maybe we'll explain yeah. our criteria a little better when we get to that part of the show. But first up is new business. And uh, Greg, why don't you start it off? Well, I hate to start the show with a down note, but uh, New England are in the Super Bowl. No, that wasn't <laughs> it. Sorry. No, it was Resident Evil did not get here in time, unfortunately. I was looking forward to that. It looks like it'll probably show up tomorrow. It's always annoying when games show up on Friday because that signals a time when I can't really get around to playing them <laughs> fully because I'm going to be busy editing this thing that you're listening to. So, a bit of a shame I didn't get to test out the circle pad and all that kind of stuff. But uh, one Resident Evil note... I I thought was kind of interesting is uh, you know in the, in the run up the week run up to this new Resident Evil game coming out the only Resident Evil commercial I've seen is for Resident Evil Six a game that's not coming out for nine months wow. I'm not really sure of the wisdom of that and Nintendo of course with their deal are responsible for the promotion and the distribution of Resident Evil Revelation so I suppose the fact that it doesn't they seem to be getting quite the same. <laughs> exposure as a game that's uh, three quarters away uh, <laughs> is down to them. Well, I thought that was kind of interesting. And also, you think it was, the timing was odd? The, the fact that Resident Evil 6 was finally kind of... I mean, we all assumed it was going on, but just to get revealed at the very moment that Revelation's about to launch in Japan and Europe, doesn't that seem weird? Like, you've got the producer of Revelation's out there sort of really trying to boost it by saying, oh, well, I, I think we could have stuck a number on it. You know, I think it's a really <laughs> legitimate part of the Resident Evil series that sort of stands yeah, up. That part of the messaging, you know, is problematic. I think... It, I think announcing a, a completely different game in the series, not even like the next one after, but just a, you know, it's a, in a different line of games 
while another one's coming out is not a bad way to do it because people are already thinking about Resident Evil. They're already excited about to play a new Resident Evil. You've also got Raccoon Operation Raccoon City coming out, I think, this year, probably in between Revelations and RE6. So uh, it's going to be a big year for the franchise, and as far as the timing of it, I wonder if they were trying to get that trailer put together for like the the VGAs, and they just didn't quite make the cut, or they you know they didn't quite get it done in time, so they finished it like three weeks later and said, okay, well I guess we'll do it now. But it also could have been a Japanese thing. I'm not sure. Yeah, they had the anniversary event over there, the 15th, and oh, all that kind of stuff. But I mean, it still strikes me a little odd because, especially you know, the thing is, you've already got mercenaries. It exists on 3DS, which is you know, uh, sort of a, a spin-off. A rip-off, you mean? Uh, well, from a consumer standpoint, you could look <laughs> at it as a rip-off, certainly. But the point is, you know, that's not, quote-unquote, a real Resident Evil game. Uh, maybe it just does it make the argument say that uh, Revelations is harder when you're already kind of advertising the next real one because it's got the number on the end. I don't, I don't know. Moving on from Resident Evil... We are now four weeks away from Last Story coming out in Europe. And they yes. showed off the pretty sort of limited edition packaging and all that kind of stuff, which you can get for not that much more. It's almost twice the price. No, no. Well, first of all, most places it's 50% more. Oh. Uh, but the the cheapest in terms of differential I've seen is, is just for £8 more. <laughs> wow. So, yeah, mm. £8 more, you would get the steel bookcase, you would get the CD, the art book, all that kind of stuff. So then it seems more reasonable. So I'm not sure, though, yeah. I'm just not sure whether I'm ready to get that game. I, I think I'm going to have to wait and see a few more reviews to see whether I want to kind of jump in straight away or maybe pace it a little bit because there's probably not going to be that many games queuing up to be used yeah, on Wii this year. That's right, I already ordered it, so... <laughs> well, sure. You, but you finished Xenoblade a long time before I did, for a start. Yes. Although the Operation Rainfall guys are going to be doing a lot of Last Story stuff now that we're down to within four weeks of it coming out, so I don't know whether a lot of people are going to start placing their import orders in the States who are sort of associated with that, but one thing I noticed in the press release is they said about the online play being for Europe, so... It raises an interesting question in that we must assume you wouldn't be able to play with Japanese people. But if you were to have an American release later on, would that mean that the people that imported it couldn't play with the people that bought the domestic release? Probably. See, I don't know. I think that they probably just said for Europe because it's NOE and they don't give a crap about whatever the hell NOE does right now. I, I think I would imagine it's more along the lines of them saying, well, the only other region that has it, Japan, you can't play with them. But I mean, Australia's getting it and I can't imagine they're saying, okay, all eight Australians have to play with each other only. Right. And, and <laughs> you know, like if you look at the case of Xenoblade. Two of which are on our staff. Hi, guys. If you if you look at Xenoblade, <laughs> it's coming to America, but it's basically the exact European version just on an NTSC disc. So if Xenoblade had online play, which it doesn't, but if it did, I bet the American and European versions would be compatible because they're essentially the same code base, whereas the Japanese version is somewhat different, but, you know, all the languages are different and everything. So in this case, it might be that the last story, because it has so much dialogue and it has so much text, they had to rip out so much code that it would have been a real nightmare to try to make the online play compatible with Japan, whereas if the last story came to America, which it will not, they could probably just, again, use the same, essentially the same version of the game for America, and in that case, the codes should be compatible with each other. 
Yeah, it's just I was thinking Monster Hunter's region locked, isn't it? Between Europe and America in particular, you can't yep. play. You know, I couldn't play John in Monster Hunter. Yep. That sounds more like a Capcom thing, though, than a Nintendo thing. Well, I don't know. It may be. It's not very clear, obviously, but perhaps it's something to bear in mind if you are holding on to the hope, which clearly Johnny does not, that it would actually get some sort of American release. See, like, like I said in my predictions, I still think it will. I just don't feel like waiting. Yeah, it's going to be a long time, isn't it? I mean, there's a two-month wait between Last Story in Europe and Xenoblade in America. So, yeah, yeah. And, and I'm also of the mind of I'm going to reward the branch that's more willing to take these risks. <laughs> Fair enough. I've, I'm looking forward to, to reading the reviews and closer to the time, I'm going to have a better sense of whether I'm kind of ready to dive in. But it, yeah, it does sound significantly more linear and whatnot than Xenoblade, so I don't think it'd be like going through the same thing again by any means, but uh, we'll see about that. But there was something I did want to mention before we move on, which is about Nintendo's recent uh, round of financials, just sort of an interesting tidbit that I pulled out of it. So You thought, you thought Resident Evil was a downer. Yeah, seriously. Ugh. Well, we had, you know, three months ago, the last time that this happened, we had a, a listener mail question that kind of tied into it, and we talked about the fact that Nintendo was then projecting that it would make the first loss in an entire fiscal year in its history in the video game business. But since that time, they've revised their uh, projections to that they would be making quite a bit larger loss yeah. <laughs> than they'd originally mm-hmm. thought. So it's now the loss they stand to make after the fiscal year is completed uh, you know, in the next couple of months will be 65 billion yen which is over 800 million bucks is how much they're projecting they're going to lose now the reasons why this is what's interesting to me the reasons why they've made an even bigger loss than they predicted just three months ago Obviously, say it with me, the yen was worth more than they thought. They really need to start uh-huh. predicting that better. Yeah. It, it it did actually have an even weirder quarter than it did the quarter before, which is funny because Japan is literally trying to make the yen worth less right now. <laughs> They're just printing more yen coins or what? Well, you know, they always used to say that, that the Wii and the uh, DS used to print money, so now they should actually make them print money. Like <laughs> the print government yen. might like them to do that. They need to actually put that into action. <laughs> All right, we're going to briefly make counterfeiting legal. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, they, I mean that was a part of it, and as I say, they just need to stop predicting that better. Well, and speaking of bad predictions, they also cut their forecast for how much uh, software they're going to sell, and some of it is 3DS software, and I think we all know why 3DS software didn't meet their initial projections. Well, no, 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 no. But this is what I wanted to come on to okay. because they, well, I'm looking at the numbers. Yes, a big part of the reason why they're also going to make a bigger loss than they thought is because their revenue are lower in general rather than just lower because of the exchange rate and there was a few key areas in which they missed it by the most where they missed on stuff like DS hardware or Wii software they were close or they missed it a little but there were some ones where they didn't so with 3DS hardware now, remember, when they were predicting this three months ago, they knew about the price cut, they knew what games were going to come out but they still missed their 3DS hardware forecast by 12.5%. Yeah. Now, yeah. I can assure you they didn't miss that because of Japan. Because even the, the sales figures were so good in Japan, in December it set a record for monthly sales on the Media Create charts. So unless they were projecting that it was going to set an even bigger record, uh, I, I doubt it was that. So it says that sales 
in the United States and Europe were not as high as they were hoping, certainly. But the other thing is that the 3DS software, so they've been, this is only three months ago that they were making this prediction, but now they've cut that forecast by 24%. 24%. And that's much, mm-hmm. much more on the downside than the hardware sales that cut was. So it, it, it makes you wonder, Japan isn't the problem, and they make up only about 20%, 20 plus percent of their overall sales. So it says to me, they were predicting that people would, once they started buying 3DSs in America and Europe, would actually be buying a lot more games with it. Yeah, they're going to pick up some of those hot uh, catalog titles from the previous six months. <laughs> well, I mean, I don't know. It, it depends what their projections were from three months ago were actually based on. But to me, right. the fact that they were so far wrong on that, you know, even when you take out the fact that they were wrong about the hardware, so naturally they're going to be wrong about the software because there's fewer people to actually buy software. But to me, it, it raises questions about whether they, they've had an impression of how willing people are to pay 40 bucks for a portable game. Yeah, and if you notice... It's fundamentally overinflated. Around around Black Friday and also near Christmas, there were some pretty deep cuts on a lot of 3DS software. It was mostly like launch window stuff, you know, that had been out for quite a while. I mean, Amazon right now, you can get a brand new copy of Pilot Wings Resort for $15. Now that's, uh, what, 60% off roughly? That's almost fair market value. Well... I'm not going to say that. I haven't I haven't really owned the game, but I would buy it at that price except for my resolution. Well, I mean, it's interesting to see you know, how we don't know where the shortfall's coming from there. But I think in general, you, know, you have to remember that in Japan, they've been quite happy to pay big prices for portable games for years. Yes. And mm-hmm. that continues to be the case. I mean, something like Rhythm Thief is coming out for 6,000 yen over there. It's so absurd. Yeah, it's like 75 bucks. Yeah, yeah, it is, yeah. And I mean, it's debuting at number two in the charts. Also, that game looks really good. Yeah, it does. It does look fun. I'm interested in it. But the point is, that's how different their market is. Yeah. And so, in terms of whether American, European consumers are willing even to suffer that 10 buck bump that we've seen from 30 to 40, this might be the first, you know, indication that even though where we think, oh, everything's rosy with the 3DS, they, you know, they've sold 15 million of them worldwide and, you know, it, it's done so at a pace that exceeds that of the Wii and the DS in their first so many months and so on and so forth. But in terms of the software, I think for the Western markets, this is a sign that they might have, especially outside of the really big ticket ones like a Mario Kart and a 3D Land, they may find it quite difficult to sell on par with what they've done in previous generations. Well, I mean, even even with the Wii, that what scares me about all this is the fact that even with the Wii, everybody knows that the Wii has not been doing well. Nintendo knows that the Wii has not been doing well, but they've even had to revise their forecast downward for the Wii. So they're actually doing even worse than they thought that they were doing. That was more on the hardware side rather right. than Right, I think they were still being eternally optimistic on the hardware. I think in that case, yeah. you have to say they probably overestimated the impact that the price cut would make at Christmas. You know, they probably thought, oh, well, it's going to be really cheap at Christmas. It's going to sell a few million more than it did. But... With this software issue, I think it's something they might have to start incorporating into future projections, that this price effect is real, and it is going to limit how much they could sell of even you know their own first-party games. To me, what I see here, what I see here isn't that the $40 price point for a game on a handheld is untenable. 
I think what it really shows is that Nintendo can't adopt the one-price-fits-all philosophy anymore. Yeah. Actually, you know, you know what's funny is there is significant price flexibility in Japanese video game prices. I mean, there is, yeah. I mean, they're high, but also flexible, sort of like in 64. Yeah, I mean, there's high, which is your lower-priced games, that there's ridiculous. <laughs> Nino Kuni, you know, especially on DS. We had the book, obviously, as well. Yeah, but, but I mean, but, I mean we, ju- we just talked about the game's going to be $77 for Rhythm Thief. Yeah, and that don't come with no book. No, that is, <laughs> that is game only. So, hey, guys, why don't we uh, move on? Hey, John, what's your new business this week? My new business, because I've heard so much about this game on this wonderful podcast, is Radiant Historia. Aha. I had to take the train to work, and, you know, of course, that means about an hour and a half of downtime. So, so wait, pause. Did you, you already owned the game, right? Correct? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. I, that's right. I just wanted to make sure I was remembering that correctly, because if you found a copy, you were going to have to spill the beans. Well, that's that's one of the reasons. That's why I've had it a while, is because I wanted to buy it. I, you guys raved about it, so I wanted to buy it while it was still out there to right. buy. And Good I think call. it was actually on sale on Amazon for some ridiculous, like 30 bucks or something, or like $25 or something like that. So <laughs> You robbed whoever was selling that. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I'm really impressed so far. You know, obviously, the uh, music is great. And uh, the, one pl- the one place where it does kind of stray from the norm is its battles. Uh, the way you can uh, – has like, you know, you have – your enemies are three squares away from you or they can move around in the grid and you can like push them back and they do less damage to you when they're further away from you and stuff like that. Uh, just kind of like wrinkles on the same old turn-based combat theme. So, you know, that's something where it's pretty cool. It's like the fact that you have to kind of train a little bit instead of just sitting there and like, you know – blindly pressing the A button, you know, like you do in, you know, a lot of the more kind of old school JRPGs that have, you know, Chrono Trigger, for example. I mean, by the end of the game, you're just sitting there like pretty much hitting A the whole time. It's also because you've become so powerful by the end of Chrono Trigger. Yeah. So, yeah, so that was pretty cool. Uh, You know, I had to laugh a little bit because it's hero stock is... Uh, it's a great name for him because he is your stock JRPG brooding <laughs> loner hero, which I got a kick out of. But he spe- his stock it's stock spell weird. And of course he has his, his little sidekicks that provide comic relief. Although, although to be fair, to be fair, you haven't gotten this far yet, but both those characters do really develop. Okay. And one of them develops quite a bit. The other one develops a bit, but not a whole lot. John, my favorite character, I don't know if you've met him yet, but he's the guy in the big red armor. Uh, is that the guy with the artificial arm? Yeah. Rosh? Yeah, Rosh. He, he turns out to be... Because you're not really sure where you stand with him for a long time. The game does a good job sort of letting on that they're avowed friends, but there's something not entirely settled between them. And mm-hmm. it, it does sort of start to show what that is. But even at the beginning, you can kind of see that there's a little bit of awkwardness there. Yeah, well, that's that's the thing. Yeah, I mean, definitely it, the story seems fairly interesting. But, you know, the the one thing I have to say, though, whenever I play these RPGs now... It, like with like the town names and all that kind of stuff, it's always like I feel like some of the text and stuff is just fill in the blanks. Like just think up a weird name for that evil kingdom. Oh, oh like Granorg is is Granorg yeah, is the Gra- empire that you're dealing with. <laughs> Granorg is the evil empire. I, I think I might have laughed about that in the review. I'm, I was like, oh, that's a name. But yeah, but it seems really good. I mean, everything like in terms of you know one of the huge things in, in RPGs that I always look for is kind of like their their menus and stuff like that. And their menus seem to be really laid out pretty well. There's only been a couple of times where I've kind of ran into something that's kind of annoying. 
And, you know, typically, especially with JRPGs, especially on the DS, it's like menus upon menus upon menus, and you can't really figure out where to go or what to do. But it's a lot of times, there's it's pretty obvious. It's pretty easy. You can, like, go in and get some new armor and equip it instantly. You don't have to go out to any other menus. So right. stuff like that, it's like it feels like very streamlined and kind of well-designed from, like, a user interface point of view. So it's good. And that makes a big difference over a very long game. Those little interface tweaks will save you a lot of time because you'll end up doing that stuff so many times that if you shave a couple of seconds and a couple of clicks off of the process, it ends up making the game feel a lot smoother. And that's not, you know, James talked about a lot with Xenoblade, how they just, all these little conveniences that seem like maybe they're not such a huge deal, but like it, you see it done that way and you think, why don't, why doesn't everyone do it this way? It's clearly better. And RPG, I think, is especially important for interface. Unfortunately, a lot of times it's a part of the game that doesn't get much attention from the developers. And it's like, I got to go through these menus for a hundred hours, right? Like they better be good. Or they better be unobtrusive. So, yeah, Radiant Historia does a great job of it, for sure. Yeah, it's like, you know when I pick a character and I buy a piece of armor, chances are that piece of armor is probably for that character, so just let me equip it right away. Thanks. <laughs> and yes. and they do that. So it's just you can just go through. It's a snap to go through all the menus and you know kind of do all that inventory management. All right, well, I'll go next. I've got a, a duo of platformers for you. So uh, first up is Trine 2. It's a PC game. I think it's also out on Xbox and PS3, but uh, I haven't haven't played those versions. I cannot vouch for them. I've actually heard the Xbox version might be bad, so you might want to be wary of that. Uh, but the PC version is really good, and uh, I'm actually playing it with my Xbox controller for PC. But, uh, you know, I, I talked about the first Trine on the show a couple of years ago when that first came out, and I really enjoyed it. It is a physics-based 2D platformer. So there, there are things like blocks and swings and ropes and stuff like that all over the uh, environment. And they, they kind of react to you in a realistic way. You know, there's a physics engine running underneath it. And because of you have the ability to push these things around, or if you're using the wizard, you can like lift them and move them around, rotate them. It, it gives you a lot of freedom to solve puzzles in creative ways. The cool thing about Trine is that it's very much not a Mario or Sonic kind of platformer. I mean, the the goal of the game is essentially to get from one side to the other, but you tend to move forward pretty slowly because there there tend to be a lot of obstacles and gaps in your way that you have to stop and figure out how you're going to get through it. So it's really a very slow-paced game, and the way that you get through things is usually not so much a test of skill, but a test of, of thought. You have to sit there and think, how do I use these pieces that are that are here uh, in the environment, all these mechanisms and, and, uh, and objects that I can manipulate, how do I use all of these to proceed? And so it ends up feeling very puzzly. It's not necessarily a puzzle game, but you end up solving a lot of puzzles in order to get through the platforming. And uh, and it's really good. And trying to, it really plays exactly the same as the first one. There are a couple of new elements in the environments that they've added that are that are really neat, but they don't make it feel all that much different than the first trying. I guess there's an online multiplayer mode now where you can play with up to three people total, and each one controls a specific character. So normally when you play by yourself, you push the shoulder buttons and you flip. Uh, you have a, a knight, a thief, and a um, wizard. And you, you can switch among the three of them, and they all have different powers, and you use them to, you know, you, you constantly switch back and forth instantly to uh, solve the puzzles and, and get through the environments. 
it's really fun stuff because you have so much at your disposal, you know, with all these different characters and all the abilities that they unlock. But it would, it, I can imagine it would be very cool, but also very frustrating to play with other people because it is very much a puzzle game. Cooperating to get through some of this stuff would, would be interesting. I mean, in some cases it might make it easier because you have two characters on the screen instead of just one. Um, but at the same time, if you're used to playing it single player and you're used to being able to flip over and use whatever ability is needed at that moment, it could be frustrating if you can't do that because another person's controlling that ability. So then you have to communicate with them. So I would imagine in a lot of cases it would actually make the game more slow and, and more difficult to get through because now you're relying on someone else to do something that you really could do by yourself if you were playing single player. So other than the co-op, which I haven't even messed with, I'm not really all that interested in it, but I think it's a neat feature. But the main reason I wanted to get this, um, and the main thing there is to say about it, is that this game looks ridiculously good. And it's so unnecessary, too. I mean, again, it is a 2D platformer. It really doesn't have to look that great. It's kind of the super ridiculous 3D graphics engine version of parallax scrolling. Because what they've done is, you know, it's a 2D game. This would look amazing in 3D, by the way, if you actually... And I think it does support 3D displays for your computer if you have that stuff. But what they've done is it's a 2D platformer, and the environments that you see behind your character in the background, they've built them layers and layers and layers and layers deep with things moving and glowing and, like, moonlight streaming through the trees. The environments are so rich and... All to no end, really, except just to look nice. I mean, they, it doesn't affect the gameplay whatsoever. Like I said, the gameplay is exactly like the first game, but it looks about a hundred times better than the first trying. Um, so for me, you know, with my new gaming PC, I wanted to have at least a couple of games I could really test it out and see some awesome PC graphics that really kind of go beyond what you can do with the current console generation. And this game absolutely does that. I mean, this this game... It would break my heart to play this on Xbox, not having now played it on PC, because it's not going to look nearly as good. It's a pretty gorgeous game, very colorful, very lush. Most of the environments I've seen so far are sort of in a jungle, which really takes advantage of that. You know, there's a lot of wildlife, there's some like giant magical creatures, giant frogs and snails and things like that. Um, plants that grow up out of the ground and they have giant leaves that you jump on and they sway when you, it's just, the game looks insane. Uh, and, uh, and it's only $15. I mean, I think yeah, I, that's one thing I really like about the sort of the modern PC gaming environment is that you can get really beautiful, really, really good games that are very complete experiences for very low prices. You know, it's not like in the old days where you had to buy like the latest and greatest first person shooter, you know, with multi-million dollar budget and everything. And it would cost you basically full price, like a 50 or $60 game. You can still get that stuff, but even like the smaller budget, more indie style games now can also look really amazing because of all the tool sets that are out there. And I would much rather play a 2D platformer than a first person shooter in 90% of the cases. So I, I have really enjoyed it so far. I'm not terribly far. I've played it for two or three hours probably. But yeah, if you like the first trine or if this sounds pretty good to you, I mean, if you like the Lost Vikings, I don't know if anyone even remembers that stuff, but. Yes. Very yep. similar to that. Very, very similar. Developed by Blizzard. Yeah, yes. it was. Take yeah. that. Stick that in your ear hole. So the other platformer that I pulled out this week, uh, oddly enough, was Super Mario Galaxy 2. It kind of came, I was thinking about it after our discussion last week about, you know, Mario 3D and game worlds and hub worlds and level selects and stuff like that. 
and it, and it reminded me that I felt guilty kind of for a while, not guilty, but I kind of had wished that I'd played more of Galaxy 2 because I, and I, when I, I went back and put it back in my Wii and I booted it up and I only had 80 stars and I felt like I just really didn't see all that the game had to offer. You know, there are probably entire levels that I haven't opened up yet, even though I technically beat it. You know, I beat Bowser at the end, but there was so much stuff left that I hadn't done yet. So I figured, well, I'm going to see if I can, how many more stars I can get. You know, I'd like to get up to 120. That's what I've done in pretty much all the other Mario games since 64. So I, I sat down and, and spent a couple hours on it, and I'm up to like 94 stars now. So I've made pretty good progress. But I am really doubtful that I'm ever going to hit 120 because some of these stars that are left are just real pains in the ass. There's the bird one where you're flying through the spaceship on the bird. That level's terrible. There's the one where you have to beat the chimp's score by bouncing on enemies and grabbing coins for points. I think that level's terrible also. So there's just, there's going to be a few that I'm not sure that the goal of getting 120 is going to be enough motivation for me to actually get through those. Maybe I'll just go for the, the low hanging fruit. The more, I mean, some of the stars that I've gotten in the past week have been really fun. So I'm not saying that they're all like that, but I think there are definitely a few stinkers and they're just so difficult and so unentertaining that I'm not sure I'm going to play them enough times to actually ever get through it. Yeah, it's something that's a common thread with all the 3D Mario games is that they all have 120, of course, and I've complained about it myself many times, you know, with respect to the first Galaxy and then the second that there's always some that is just, this is in here to get it to 120. Yeah. And that is not a valid reason to have it in there. You know? It's just like, <laughs> well, who gives a shit about the number? Like, and of course it's filler, but it's really difficult, annoying filler. That's the part that bothers me. If it was easy, I'd say, whatever, I'll get it and move on to the next one. Yeah, I think the well, the real issue, I think, is what's it always kind of carried me through those is the momentum mm. to take a big break. And then come back. Yeah. yeah. It's tough. It's tough. Skyward Sorditis, if you will. <laughs> yeah, but the point the point is, these are never the best parts of the 3D Mario games. Uh, I mean, I think Sunshine in particular, I found quite painful to get oh, to 120 because the, the blue coins. I mean, that was such a cheap way to get to that number, which is yeah. arbitrary in itself. It's pretty shameful in that way, to be honest. Actually, I would say some of the green stars in Galaxy 2 are some of the most shameful. Well, but again, that's like a bonus, bonus, bonus mode, right? I think uh, the weird thing is some of the green stars are like hidden in a really clever way, or you have to do something advanced to get them, like some sort of advanced manipulation of those stars that you have to use the pointer on that slingshot him around. Yeah. You could really sort of push the physics of that to the limit to drift him out to some distant spot to get a green star. Things like like that are really cool. And I think if you just kind of consolidated these things so that we had some of the more clever green stars and they'd made them the additional ones uh, they'd had whether it's 120 or not a number that is ones that are not cheap or well it's pretty much the same thing you did before but now it's a little different or you know, just rationalize it a bit so quick question for you guys is the deal with the green stars that they're all just kind of sitting out somewhere and you just have to go grab them 
because that sounds f- if it's hide and seek, that sounds fun to me. But but some of them aren't really hidden that well. Some of them are no, literally I mean, some are, some are, again totally perfunctory. It's like oh, it's there, you know. <laughs> but but the idea is that you're you're doing platforming to go grab something, and and I like that idea. I like the idea that you have to actually get to it, and that's the challenge. Because most of the stars that piss me off in Galaxy Two are ones where I have to win a race or I have to get a certain number of points that the chimp has set out for me or the something. The chimp is a and bastard. And that, that shit is, that's bullshitty. I mean, I'm not really platforming anymore. I'm meeting some kind of arbitrary goal that they've set out. It's and mini game stuff. It's mini games, exactly. I don't want to play mini games in Mario. I want to play Mario. Exactly. Well, that's the problem. Again, spinning it off into this completely separate mode, essentially, that's after you've done everything. Yeah. Right. I don't know the wisdom of that, because there's definitely some quality content. As I described, oh, yeah. there's one I really liked, where you had to basically go through a whole level, keeping the cloud suit intact, to then <laughs> go and use it on a place where that's the only way you could possibly get to a green star. That, to me, is like old-school Mario. You know, you keep the cape in Mario World so you can find a secret exit that's just really or trying to beat the boss with the frog suit <laughs> yeah mario 3 but i mean it, it's just you know you unless you are just barreling down on it the way i did it i you know i don't know how many people saw that kind of merit well i know pale did because he bits like a bitch about the last one <laughs> <laughs> fittingly enough huh well uh i i might keep hammering away on it we shall see i would like to try the green stars um so maybe maybe i'll get to that point but james what do you got so i have a bit of a surprise mm. see you see there was one game in a series that i like a lot that i had never played is it made by chunsoft no i don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> okay my guess is screwed i only like one game they've made and it's not a series it's yet Nico's <laughs> adventure for ps1 <laughs> no no it, see you see there was there was a big glaring omission in my warrior catalog DIY, is it? WarioWare snapped. Oh, the DSiWare one. Because DIY is not really a proper WarioWare game per se. It's more like WarioWare Studio. And I'm, I'm more. And this is? Technically speaking, yes. It has the same structure as a WarioWare There's game. There's a lot of good classic WarioWare stuff in there, DIY. There are. It comes packed with a lot of good content. You buy it for the studio. I mean, that's what it's for. And and I do intend to get it, but it's it's not like the other Wario games that are trying to show off some element of the hardware. I think the WiiWare version is the way to go, because if you don't care about the studio, you still get all the content, and it costs way less. Well, actually, now the game's like 12 bucks, so oh. it's not that bad. Like, I, I am planning on getting it in the near future, but I went with Snapped, because... Certainly after our rousing discussion where it came up, it can't be that bad. <laughs> no, it, it actually can't be that bad. So uh, what what Snapped is, is there are four WarioWare characters are each opening a roller coaster in Wario's theme park, which sounds like the worst place on Earth. And on these, quote, roller coasters, you are hit with a series of challenges that have no discernible theme with the exception of Cat and Anna. Who th- theirs are actually two-player, which we'll get to that in a second. Everybody else's are basically just, it's you in front of the DSi camera trying to put your face into a predefined area and or your hands, depending on the game, and then hoping to God the game continues to recognize your face and hands throughout the gameplay. Oftentimes it doesn't. Oftentimes it notices pieces of background information and determines, oh, that's his hands now. And then you're given some task like swat flies, and you have to swat flies. Each of the four characters has five one, two, three, four, five games. You will see these same five games every time you play their their stage. That is all that you get 
This game has 20 games. It can be completed in 10 minutes. <laughs> that is why you were snapped. Bad controls using the DSi camera that tries to map your movements with this like crazy black mist that represents your face and hands because that's all it can do in real time over their crazy WarioWare-inspired overlays. The best part of them, though, and I really hated this game until I got to Mona's stage. When you finish each game, if you pass it or not, is irrelevant on whether or not you get to go to the next the next stage because there's only five of them. But at the end, just like when you go through a real roller coaster and it takes your picture at certain places to sell them to you later for $80, <laughs> it, it, it takes your picture while you're playing the game. And you don't realize it's doing this until later. And it overlays things on them for comedic effects. Like one of the games, you have to move your head so a hat falls down on you. And then depending on what hat fell down on you in the picture, a much more embarrassing hat than the one that you picked coming down shows up on top of your head. <laughs> or in one of them, there's a game where you have to lean in so you can be kissed by these cartoon characters that come out on the sides. And in that one, it's replaced by a burly man kissing you. Or just just <laughs> random things that are overlaid on top of it. So after I got through Mona, I was like, okay, that was kind of fun. Anyone you fail, it just says picture not available. But the best one was Mr. T's, where it actually tells a story of a private investigator slash criminal hitman who is engaged in removing a, a challenge. And it uses your pictures to literally tell a story. Hmm. It, I mean, it's kind of fun, but it's fun one time. And that's, that's it. That's the entirety of the game. And then when you finish the level, the background of you selecting your next stage is video of you playing the previous games, which looks absurd. So it's kind of a fun way of showing off the DSi camera. That's all it was really intended for, right? I mean, isn't it kind of the face raiders that you pay for? Yeah, essentially. It's actually not even as competent as face raiders. I, I do kind of wish, though, that the WarioWare team would go back and make a 3DS game like this. Like, they had a decent idea. I just feel like it wasn't able to deliver on it. But, it, like, they could make a good game. But let's get to the Cat Nana stage because it's ridiculous. You have to play with two players. Now, here's the problem. At one point, I was playing a stage, and there's this calibration phase for every time you start. And it told me that I do not contrast enough with the white wall I was sitting in front of, and therefore it could not start. You need a tan. I am too white to play this game in my own apartment. <laughs> I had to play this game in front of the door, which is brown, because it's made of wood. But what I ended up with was... I could barely make it show up, all of me, and I have this kind of ledge where the lighting runs in, in my apartment, and it was picking up that as my hand sometimes. It was awful. But with Cat Nana, you have to squeeze two people around the DSi camera. I tried this by myself, and it, it, knowing it wouldn't pick up the second person, so I couldn't start. But just to see if I could manage to squeeze into that space... I am reasonably certain that no one has ever managed to get the calibration for the Cat Nana stages to work. Because there is no way you could squeeze a second person onto that screen. It is impossible. Which means that the WarioWare team has created the greatest act of trolling in the series history. They have created a game that only has 20 stages in it, and five of them can never be played by anyone. <laughs> so congratulations to them. I, I, I had fun with it for the duration of a singular episode of Sherlock. That's it. <laughs> that is the amount of joy I extracted from this game. An hour and a half. Okay, cool. Well, now we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll have our video game bucket list.
Here's a quick look at the best original content at our website, now playing at NintendoWorldReport.com. We begin this week with impressions uh, by Danny Bivens of the Japanese 3DS eShop demo for Rhythm Thief and the Emperor's Treasure. Are you ready for a rhythm game with that Sega swag? Yeah. And then on also another demo impression, but this one a bit closer to home, uh, Resident Evil Revelations by Zach Miller, who notes that while playing that demo, he was on a boat, motherfucker. Uh, as, <laughs> as a caveat here, as we found out earlier this week, originally this game was going to be in a mansion on the ocean that is not a boat. All right. Uh, and we have a review of Zen Pinball 3D on the 3DS eShop by James Dawson. He says, Is Zen Pinball 3D the first must-have pinball experience that the eShop has to offer? I don't know. Why don't you read the review and find out? And also, another 3DS eShop review by Neil Ronahan checks out Mutant Muds, which he says, The latest eShop title might be the best. That's, that's an interesting inflection at the end of that sentence, John. I'm just, I'm just reporting the news, James. That's technically your reporting review, but that's fine. We have a preview <laughs> of Shin Megami Tensei Devil Survivor 2 for the DS by Nate Andrews, which is more Shin Megami Tensei for the DS. I'm looking forward to the 3DS version. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> It'll cost $10 more and feature no additional content. It'll be called Overest Clocked. <laughs> we have another preview of a game of questionable need. Mario and Sonic at the London 2012 Olympic Games by Alex Kulafi. He notes that Mario and Sonic take their competition for Olympic gold to the 3DS, and I note that that game is horrible. Hey, we've got a feature by our own James Jones called Hints Fishing Resort. (laughs) Scorcher. James has got some exclusive hints for this XSeed published fishing game by Prope. We actually have a contest going, which will still be going for a couple more days after this comes out, where you can win a copy of that by sending me a picture of a fish from a game that surprises me that it has fish. And for this week's Extra Life, we've got Wrecking Crew, also by Alex Kalafi. The entire Wrecking Crew fan base expresses his love for an NES launch <laughs> title. Oh, he's an army of one. Alright, well be sure to go check out all of that great original content as well as the latest news over at NintendoWorldReport.com Welcome back to the show everybody. It's time to go over our video game bucket list. And uh, Greg, this was kind of your idea. Do you want to elaborate on just what you meant by this? Well, you know, it's the games that you've always meant to play, but haven't got around to, but that you remain committed to play one day. You know, whether it'll ever be in the confines of this show. You know, there's a lot of games coming out on all different sorts of platforms. Mm-hmm. You know, quite a few of the wild re-releases. That may be how we ultimately get to play some of the items that are going to be on these lists. But the right. bottom line is, we want to get around to it one day. And so it was on my mind a little bit because I was thinking about, you know, the Japan Virtual Console and all that kind of stuff. And I mean, I've crossed off an awful lot 
You know, I mean, there were so many games yeah. that I really wanted to play, classics in series that I really loved because they were on other formats or whatever I didn't get to play, or they were import games like Dracula X or this, that, you know, but uh, I've played a lot of those, but uh, I started to think, what's left? Yeah. And obviously a lot of it's stuff that's not available on Virtual Console or other digital services, but I was quite surprised there's still a lot of stuff that spans a lot of years as well. Yeah, m- mine do too, and I think this is sort of a topic that we've kind of bu- around for years um, at least yeah. three of us are now James is going to claim that he he doesn't really operate this way and I'll, I'll... well there is another component to this uh, sort of devious ulterior motive uh, for this uh, feature which is that uh, not throwing any accusations around but it will essentially reveal who among us has pirated the fuck out of the games industry over the past 20 years <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and you know, I mean, if you look back at like you know when John played through Chrono Trigger last year, I mean that that was kind of a huge example of finally you know playing that yeah. one game that like had been haunting you for decades that you really wanted to play mm-hmm. and you just never found the time to. I'm sort of doing it now with Kotor, not as a, an extreme or dramatic example, but it is a game I've sort of been curious about for quite a long time, and I'm finally playing through it very slowly. So um, that's kind of the idea, and and some of these may go back pretty far, so I kind of thought maybe what we would do is uh, march through the generations of, of video games and, uh, and sort of see who has a game in each one. So let's start out by uh, looking at the pre-NES days. Who's got, a, who's got a game from before the NES even came out? So, John, when you were about 30... Yeah, so anyways, uh, after I got out of college in about 1973, um, <laughs> well, yeah, so my my entry is not so much a game, but more uh, a game system. Kind of my holy grail ever since when I was a kid, because, you know, I grew up in the wilds of Canada, where it was hard to find some certain video uh, video game consoles way back in the day, like in the early 80s. Not so much the Atari 2600, but some of the more obscure ones, but... My holy grail has always been the Vectrex. Ooh. Now, we had Kohler on here a while back, and he had this great story about how I think his his mom found a Vectrex on the side of the road yeah. or something, <laughs> and he actually brought it home to him, and he got it working, yeah. which yeah. is amazing to me. It's just that's the wildest story, one of the wildest I've ever heard. But yeah, so the Vectrex, you know, it's a little vector graphic box, and the thing that makes these things even more rare as time goes on is the fact that... The whole, I mean, it's all encompassed in one, the screen and everything is encompassed in one console, right? Mm -hmm. It's all one package. So if something breaks, the whole thing breaks. You just can't use it anymore. Right. So these things are getting more and more rare. So, And I haven't really gone out to flea markets like or anything like that trying to specifically look for one. But I've always wanted it, you know, to play games like all of those classic vector graphics games like Berserk. They have like uh, an Asteroids clone called Mindstorm, I think. And there's like Ripoff and Scramble. There's a lot of homebrew for Vectrex. I don't know how you would access it, but there's some cool stuff in, in homebrew. Yeah, so, you know, this, and it was just cool. Like, I was just really, because at the time, even, it was really different compared to anything else out on the market. And it had these little color overlays. You know, of course, all the, the vector graphics were just like white vector graphics, right? But mm-hmm. it had the color overlays to kind of change the, the way things looked on screen. And it was just really, really cool. Yeah, it and was, it, it was like the little television slide in things for the controller. So you could make the stupid telephone pad look like it was actually relevant to the game. Yeah, that telephone pad was hideous. <laughs> Only it was translucent. That's a great pick, John. I, I that would almost make my list, except that I never knew I wanted a Vectrex until a couple of years ago when I played one for the first time at PAX, PAX East. Yeah, they're really cool. Part part of it is just a it's just a neat package. 
Yeah. Oh, it's so it's such a weird, bizarre, obscure piece of video game history. And and it's also one of those things where, you know, you, you can go back to like an old Pong table. And like if you had a Pong mm-hmm. table at your house, people would come look at it and say, well, that's kind of neat. But Pong looks like shit. Like Pong is just not very entertaining anymore, I don't think. And it's not very impressive. Yeah. The cool thing about the Vectrex is that technology was abandoned, you know, not long after that. So there's really nothing out today that looks like Vectrex. So even though it's clearly old technology, it still has this uniqueness to it that I think is still impre- is technologically impressive in its own way. Yeah, definitely. So, uh, you know, at some point I want to get a Vectrex. Also the fact too, it's just a small little cabinet. Yeah, they're very they're very tiny. They're about 16 inches tall. Yep. So, I mean, and it wouldn't take up much room at all to have in a room. So, it'd be great to just have kind of sitting on a shelf somewhere in a corner, you could pick it up and play it. And then it would break and you'd be sad. Exactly. <laughs> that too. It would break in about eh, 20 minutes. It's it's kind of like an old car. <laughs> like if you buy it, you also better learn how to take care of it and fix it. <laughs> mm-hmm. And buy some extra parts for it. Okay, well let's let's get into the NES era then, it, and and this could also apply probably to like Sega Master System and Coleco Vision, I suppose, or anything like that. So anything from the NES era. Well, I mean, my as I've recounted on the show before, my NES ownership era was tragically cut short because it failed and I moved on to Super Famicom and all that. So it's probably a lot more games, I could say, than the ones I've got picked out here. But the first one I'm going to go with is uh, pretty familiar to most people, but I've never been able to play it at all, and that's DuckTales. So as you can imagine, you know, this got quite a lot of coverage in the magazines and stuff over here. I was very aware of its existence, you know, and it it got good reviews. And even to this day, a lot of people would hold it up as one of the better NES games that was produced. But I've never got a chance to play it. And of course, as time's gone on, I realize how much it means to other people, like the music. And, you know, it's come up on other podcasts, like a whole bunch of times. On on YouTube, there's a remix. Someone remixed the moon song from DuckTales for the Final Fantasy VI soundboard. So they've made the moon <laughs> song awesome. from DuckTales sound like it was a song in Final Fantasy VI, which of course is a great choice with all the moon stuff in Final Fantasy, but more so in four, I guess. But um, it sounds really good, but I think I still prefer the original. Oh, I mean, that, that was Capcom doing what they do with sound. Yeah, that, that's the thing. I mean, I have got the chance to play stuff like the Mega Man games, certain amount of Capcom's NES output, but this is the license part. You know, this is yeah. why it's still on this list rather than one of the many items I've crossed off in the last five years or so. Uh, and it, and there's quite a lot of other really good license games that kind of fall in this bracket, but I put DuckTales on it just because it seems to be such a touchstone for everyone else and a good game in its own right. I yes. just feel like I have to see it, I have to play it, see what the fuss is about kind of thing. And the really funny thing, Greg, is that, and I'm not kidding, I wrote this earlier today, I have DuckTales 2 on my list. Because DuckTales <laughs> is one of my all-time favorite games. It was the first game I completed, and I do think it is one of the best NES games. And there's a sequel that I've never seen a copy of it, I've never played it, I know almost nothing about it. But knowing how I feel about DuckTales, if I had unlimited resources and time, I would go out and seek a copy of DuckTales 2 and finally play it. Just a, I finally got to play Chippendale's Rescue Rangers 2 at PAX East, and uh, that was fun. But it's really, I don't, I never liked Rescue Rangers nearly as much. I mean, the the fun in that game is just beating up your friend when you play co-op. 
but <laughs> but Dark Tales is a sublime single player experience, and I would love to play more of it. I mean, I would love to go back and play like you. I'd love to go back and play just more DuckTales. Of course, I've played it many times, but it's been a really long time since I played it, and I'd love to get back to that, but I would especially... I picked this over Gargoyle's Quest, too, just because I don't have nearly as much nostalgia for Gargoyle's Quest, even though I like it a lot. Although I, I would love to play Gargoyle's Quest, too, but DuckTales, too, I think it edges it out. Yeah, I've got another couple of NES games. I mean, the next one, a bit less mainstream, but they did get really good reviews in the British magazines, which is perhaps uh, no coincidence, because it's developed by Rare, uh, it's Solar Jetman, uh, mm. it's from 1990. So, I mean, this kind of a sequel to Jetpack, as, you know, it's related yep. to those games. Um, you know, I guess kind of like Pixel Junk Shooter in a way. <sighs> James, have you played it? I haven't played Pixel Junk Shooter, but I've played Jetman. But you know, if the point is, it's not a side-scrolling shooter, or you know, you're moving in all directions. Right. No. No. I'll concede that. It, it it actually does look a lot like Pixel Junk Shooter. I think it feels quite a bit different. Well, if, I mean, first of all, obviously you got twin sticks, yeah. and you know, apparently gravity's a big part of the game. Oh God, you have no idea. <laughs> and the planets all have different gravity. A lot. I mean, it's kind of infamously hard. This is one of the reasons why I kind of like the idea. But also, I mean, it. this was so highly praised when it came out. It's always left this sort of positive impression, you know, when I think about the game. I would just like to see if it could possibly live up to that. But the, you know, it, just to head it off, though, Battletoads is not going to be on the list, even though I never played that either. But this being a really hard, rare game seems quite a bit more interesting <laughs> than Battletoads. Yeah, to Battletoads me. is really just sadism at some point. I mean... Yeah, I mean, Solar Jetman is more interesting than Battletoads, but it is just as hard. No, it's not It's not as hard as that stupid jet bike level in Battletoads. It's as hard as everything but that level. <laughs> I, I might agree. I think Solar Jetman is more skill-based, and if you played it long enough, you would eventually get better and learn the levels and, and really manage to do it, but... The deck is stacked so hard against you in Solar Jet, man. It just there's so many ways to die, uh, and the, <laughs> the physics are just brutal. I mean, it, it's in the span of just figuring out how much gravity there is on any level and how your ship is going to react to it. You could probably go through two continues worth of deaths. Yeah, it, it's a, it's a little bit crunchy too in terms of how much work you end up having to put into it. Yeah. Sometimes it, it's not that it doesn't feel fair, but it's not fair. the game is the game is deliberately obscuring reality from you i mean yeah it's pretty brutal i mean i greg i used to be in in very much your position um i was really really interested in it and for a long time i couldn't get it and i finally found a copy somewhere and actually got to play it and found that i really did not have the patience for it it is a cool game but geez man it is uh it's so brutal so brutal that I, I could barely have fun with it. I really wanted to like it, but you might have, I mean, knowing your personality, you might get more out of it than I did, but uh, it's a, it's a beast, man. Yeah. I just like to see it. There, you know, as Gandalf says, before he fights the Balrog, there are some powers in this world against which I've not yet been tested. So <laughs> <laughs> I, I would like to see it. Oh God, that's great. Uh, any other NES era games? I've got one more, uh, and I thought I probably could have more than this, because I did not pirate the fuck out of NES games. But uh, it's Metal Storm hmm. oh. from Irem. So this is something that I was completely unaware of 
during the 8-bit era itself, quite unlike DuckTales and Solar Jetman. I'm sure I heard the name, but it just never resonated or anything. But this is a, a, a very much a late NES game from 1991, and it came up in the conversation kind of when Galaxy came out. I remember, I think Jeremy Parrish, I think, talked about Metal Storm in terms of you know, some of the, the likenesses with Mario Galaxy doing gravity flipping because the gameplay is based around the fact that you're controlling this mech that could like, either walk on the floor or walk on the ceiling. And so you're switching between the two. So I guess it must have a certain amount of, sort of VVVVVV similarities as well. And it just seems like I, I'm a big fan of Irem's R-type games, of course. And uh, this sounds like a really cool platformer with a big twist, especially for the 8-bit era, that um, you know, it seems like a lot of people might have missed because it was coming out towards the end of the NES era stuff. So very much one uh, I'd like to get. But in terms of the prospects for it being a virtual console, with the point now where they're pulling R-type games off services, because Irem as, or even Irem as a developer has been defunct for for years but just in terms of who's controlling the rights or whatever is now moved on to some other phase so I, i'm not optimistic about the prospect of playing this except for getting you know something that will play nes cartridges and, and plugging one in hmm. any more from that era uh, for me, my in my hall of shame super mario 3 i still have yet to beat Jesus. that game. so you've played it but not beaten it Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Again, it kind of fell into that loop where it just—it was in that time when, for some reason, I just did not play it. I wasn't interested in playing it at the time. I'd played, uh, you know, Mario One and Two, and I don't know. It's just I just never picked it up at the time it came out. Hmm. I pretty much moved on to the Super NES, and that was it. I just skipped it, went right to Super Mario World, which, of course, at the time seemed mind blowing because I was like, wow, this whole thing is so new. But now when I go back and play Super Mario 3, I'm like, all that stuff in Super Mario World that I thought was new, it really wasn't that new. <laughs> they just added some wrinkles onto Super Mario 3, so. But you're committing to beat it one day. Absolutely. It's right up there. It's pretty much number two behind Chrono Trigger. Hmm. So it's up there. Well, the good thing is it's a short game, but and it's easy for most of the run, but when you get to World 8, some of those levels in World 8 are just ridiculous. I remember when I was a kid, we would just save up our P-Wings through the whole game and just burn them on some of those final levels, because like, there's like a <laughs> tank level, there's an airship level that is fucking impossible, and I don't know that I've ever beaten that level without using a P-Wing, or at least going in with a raccoon tail. So, but there, but there are strategies you can do within the game without even cheating or anything. Um, if you just kind of play strategically and save your really strong items, so you can definitely do it. Um, okay, well, let's move on right, to. I, I, oh, we got one more. Okay, we got one more. So the only the only NES game that I really kind of wish I gotten around to playing because I had access to it, but I never really got to play it. Because I really liked the light gun was Gumshoe, which is a game that controls exclusively with the light gun, but isn't really a shooting game. It's really? funny you mentioned that because it would it didn't make it on my list, but I did recall as like that was the Zapper game I always wished I had but didn't. Like yeah. I had Hogan's Alley and it sucked balls, yeah. and you know I had Duck Hunt and you know it is what it is. That always seemed way more interesting because as you said, it's not just your standard shooter gallery thing. Yeah, I mean I had Barker Bill's Trick Shooting, I had Duck Hunt, I had Hogan's Alley, I had To the Earth, and I think I would have had Freedom Force as well. To the Earth? I've never even heard of some of these games. That the, the, To the Earth is great. It's fantastic. But Gumshoe is weird, because those are all you shoot things, make them die. Gumshoe is a platform where you control by shooting. So you make said Gumshoe jump 
by shooting. <laughs> and things are being thrown at you, and there's pitfalls everywhere, and anything that touches you kills you. I mean, it's just masochism. Interesting. I, I have heard of Gumshoe all my life, but I never knew that it was anything. I always kind of got it confused with Hogan's Alley. I always kind of felt like they were probably about the same thing. Well, yeah, they're both guys in trench coats. Yeah. But, I mean. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I had no idea that it was this weird platformer. It kind of makes me, I mean, I'm sure it's nowhere near as good. I don't mean to infer anything quality, but conceptually, it kind of makes me think of Jungle Beat. You know, a, a platform-style game that's being controlled with this weird peripheral <laughs> that was intended for something quite different. No, I think that's perfectly fair. I mean, there are lots of Jungle Beat in that. It's just what you said. It's using a peripheral to control a game genre that it was not intended to be used in. Now, whether it's anywhere near as successful, I have no idea, but I would quite like to find out. But as, this is why it's on the list, because you know, it's not exactly the easy thing to go back to. No, and in fact, a light gun is not going to work very well on a modern TV either. <laughs> no, <laughs> yeah, you've got to whip out the old CRT. This is the kind of game that the classic room and, and the retro room in PAX East is just perfectly made for. If anyone has it, you know, if, if you're lucky enough that someone actually brought their... Because they do have CRT TVs in that yes. room because there's certain games that just don't work very well with modern TVs so there's a lot of old TVs original NESs old accessories you know if you find the right combination of stuff you might actually be able to play it good one to uh, keep in mind and look for when we get there it's all meth headed the game so um, alright so let, let's talk about 16 bits so this could be Super Nintendo Genesis Turbo Graphics uh, or also PC games from around that time. I think that qualifies as well if there are any PC games from the 16-bit sort of time span. Yeah, actually, um, one system, I it's I think it's kind of a hybrid, I guess. I'm not sure if you can necessarily call it 16-bit. Might be 32-bit, the Atari Jaguar. Oh, well. <laughs> the Jaguar was 64-bit, thank you. Yeah, that's right. It was 64-bit, but it was bullshit 32-bit. Okay, whatever. We can move <laughs> it on like to later. It was like bullshit 10-bit. What are hold, you talking hold about? Hold that thought. We'll get to it in a minute. For sure, but I want—I definitely want to hear your Jaguar game. Just hold that. Yeah, what, what, yeah, what Jaguar game do you want to play? There, there was that. Um, there was one that was quite well thought of. That was an old yes. arcade game. I can't remember be, what be it still, was. Be still, Greg. Be still. Be still, Greg. You'll it'll come to you. Oh. It'll come to you. <laughs> All right. For for sixteen bit games, I have a few here. I have never really played Final Fantasy V. Ah, oh. I remember. When I first got to college and learned about this thing called emulation and, and tried to play a fan translation of Final Fantasy V, didn't get very far because the emulator ran very poorly on my graphics uh, on my computer at the time. Yeah, at the time, those were actually considered relatively beefy things to be running. Yes, I mean, it was like you had to like turn different layers on and off, you know, if there were clouds or a mist in the scene, then you couldn't see your character anymore because it didn't do transparencies correctly. So you had to like micromanage all the different graphical layers. It was a really bad experience. And, you know, I didn't like playing it on my keyboard, so I didn't get all that far. And then a few years later, they brought out the PS1 version for the Final Fantasy anthology or whatever it was. And I didn't even buy that game. A friend bought it. Um, my one of my roommates bought that collection, and I tried to play FF5 on that. The load times were so bad, and the translation also is the first official English translation of that game, but it wasn't very good. And the load times are just killer in a 16-bit RPG. I mean, it's just unforgivable. So I never got very far in that version either. So I've made a couple of attempts, but I've never really played it. Now, the one version that's probably decent and worth getting is the GBA version, which, as we know, is very hard to find. 
They made eight copies. Yeah, so I've never and really... And gave them only to their friends and family. So I, I'm crossing my fingers that Square Enix is going to get on board with uh, eShop, and they're going to release some GBA games on it eventually, once that's allowed by Nintendo. Because I would love to play Final Fantasy V in a really good version. Hopefully it'll happen one day. But as it is, there's just not a really good way for me to do it. And it's the only Final Fantasy game, other than three, that I've never played. All right, so who, who's got another 16-bit era game? Well, 16-bit, but non-Nintendo, Genesis, actually sort of a twofer. This is Castlevania, Bloodlines, and Contra Hardcore. Ah. Konami sort of staunchly in Nintendo's camp for the most part uh, during the 16-bit era. But this was you know, a couple of times that they strayed, and uh, a lot of people have very good things to say about these. Some people swear that Contra Hardcore is like the best one. Yeah. This is at the point where Treasure had left Konami, the people that founded Treasure had left, but it was kind of like Konami trying to copy them in a weird snake-eating-its-tail thing, so <laughs> it sounds appealing. And then Castlevania Bloodlines, it seems like it's a pretty cool sort of different take on Castlevania because it's got like all these different set. It's like Castlevania around the world or something, mm. you know, it's, it, rather than all being in the castle, you're kind of going around all these different kind of locations. Or, you know, and so it's got a bit more variety, at least uh, in, in that sense, the normal. And you've got like different playable characters. Or, I mean, I've played so many Castlevanias, there's very few left. You know, there was a time when I hadn't, quite recent time, that I hadn't played Dracula X, I hadn't played Symphony of the Night, hadn't played Castlevania 3. But they're all down now. This is what's left, and uh, I really want to play it. And it's a bit of a mystery to me why these are not on Virtual Console, because yeah. there's plenty yeah. of other Konami stuff on Virtual Console. Obviously, there's plenty of Mega Drive games or, or Genesis games on there. And I mean, as a result, cartridges for these games are expensive. Mm. If you want to get your... Yeah, it's certainly in my experience with the avenues that are open to me here in Britain. I've never seen them for a palatable price. So uh, I really hope that they do release them uh, in some sort of accessible form one day, but I've got to play them eventually, maybe several years hence, and I have to buy a, a Mega Drive and I have to buy the games uh, for some obscene price. But I, I really want to see this sort of different spin on two of my favorite series. Yeah, good picks. Yeah, now just a quick one that we've actually talked about before, I believe at some point. Um, I really want to play Ghouls and Ghosts on the Super Graphics. Oh, yeah, because well, I got this. Yeah, that's why we yeah. talked about it. I downloaded it off the Japan Virtual Console. Yep. So that's definitely up there. I want to just try it. I, I just love like the, the super graphics itself. I mean, <laughs> like five games. <laughs> I, I don't, yeah, I had like seriously like five or six games, but it, I, I don't believe it was ever released in the US in any way, shape or form, was it? No, it did not. For obvious fucking reasons. And I think most of the games, which is to say like three or four of them <laughs> on Super Graphics were kind of just slightly enhanced versions of regular TurboGrafx games. I think they might have even been yeah. the same cartridges, but if you put them in a Super Graphics, they had kind of extra colors or something like that. I think that's at least true of a Darius game that was on it. Yeah, yeah. yeah well, that sounds familiar. Yeah. So it didn't really have its own library. And, and of course, Ghouls of Ghosts is just for that. 
Right. That's it's like the yeah. one really good exclusive game for Super Graphics that didn't. Now, having said that, of course, you know it was converted also to the Genesis and pretty much everything under the sun, <laughs> apart mm-hmm. from the Super Nintendo, which got its own sequel. Yeah. I having played it and watched videos and stuff, I think it's definitely better than the Mega Drive game in some ways. In terms of the graphics are more detailed and the animations better. But the music's a little off. Uh, it just doesn't sound quite. But then again, the Genesis music doesn't sound great either. But uh, <laughs> no, you could pick your poison with that, I guess. <laughs> but Ghouls uh, of Ghosts is a really good game, and it's definitely a good version. I think a little closer to the arcade, but both that and the more popular Mega Drive version are quite far away. You know, because that mm. was when Capcom kind of upgraded their arcade hardware. Mm. You know, the stuff, the the board that they did that and Strider on and all, and and it they, it looks really nice when you see the arcade version. Yeah, um, and a couple of other uh, Turbo Graphics 16 slash PC Engine games that I, I would like to play just because I think they're so terrible. Uh, <laughs> would be JJ and Jeff and China Warrior. Oh God. Oh, Two yeah. of them that I've never played and that's the thing I've never even seen them you know in the in... Oh, they're they're both on virtual console. I mean, they can be yours for the mere sum of 1200 points. That's the thing I don't want to pay for them. That's the catch. I don't want to <laughs> With China Warrior's got broken pixels. Just what's that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. JJ and Jeff is kind of special because it's more than just the gameplay that's wrong with it. There's a conceptual issue in play. Because they mm-hmm. was based on Japanese celebrities, right? And then yeah. when it got brought over, it, they, obviously they had to just change that into two generic dude characters. Yeah, there's, there's <laughs> just a conceptual yep. mistake. Well, it's yeah, it's one of those games that should never have been brought to the West, and yet for some bizarre reason, it was. Yeah, which is not really a common occurrence back then. It was right. more like there's plenty of games with really good reasons to bring them over that they didn't. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. I know, for, especially for the, the PC Engine, it had tons of games. But, yep, those games are just completely, they're, I'm sure they're horrible. I don't want to pay for them, but I would like to play them. You know, I believe China Warrior is recommended for fans on our website, thanks to Mindy Man. <laughs> for fans of big sprites. Th- thanks to Steven Rodriguez. Yes. I recall that he was bizarrely forgiving of that game, even though everyone else completely hates it. Because it deserves derision. Indeed. Um, so, James? My game is Japanese, or my, my primary game is Japanese. It never came out here, although I'm very aware of it. It's a Square game called Bahamut Lagoon. Oh, yeah. oh, I've heard it. this came out on the Japan Virtual Console. It did, yes, which is how I became aware of it. And then as I studied up on it, I was like, wow, it looks really cool. This this is a tactical RPG, but it, the twist is that there's multiple strategies and types of units that come into play, and when th- when enemies get really close to each other, it goes even into a further battle mode, which is a traditional RPG to square off for a turn. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like a battle in a battle. That's a cool idea. There's lots of weird little strategy quirks about the gameplay that seemed really cool. And it seems like an awesome kind of strategy game that I would have liked to have played, although I didn't really know about it at the time. Yeah. Um, there, there's a uh, Cybernator, which was uh, also called Assault Suits in Japan. Which, Assault Suits Vulcan, yeah. Which is apparently much better in Japan, but it's a side-scrolling. Yeah, it, basically, I think the story got kind of butchered to chop it down and stuff, you know, to fit. Isn't Cybernator on Virtual Console? You you did the recommendation for it, Johnny. It's not, yeah, it's not fantastic. I've got the Japanese versions. I can't appreciate the plot differences or whatever, but I did yeah. quite enjoy it. I mean, it's got quite a uniquely complex control scheme. Oh. 
Right. Because basically, it's pretty much like a kind of dual stick shooter without dual sticks. And then the only game I have that came out unbutchered in English is Evo, Search for Eden, which is a game where you start as a fish and turn into a damn dinosaur. That's a great choice. I always was curious about that, too. Evo always, I always think of it as kind of like the original version of Spore. It, it has that kind of... Yeah, but it's much more fixed pace, isn't it? Yeah, well, I don't... I, I think it's almost like a platformer. Like, you get power-ups that evolve your creature. I think it's kind of an action game, but based around the idea that that your character is evolving through all these different sort of Jurassic forms. Mm, I see. I think. I mean, I'm I'm basing it on 20-year-old Nintendo Power article memories, but... Which is probably just lost anyway. Yeah. <laughs> but I always thought that game looked really cool. Um, all right, any any final 16-bit games? I, I have one that might fit into this. I'm actually not exactly sure when this game came out, so I could be a generation off. But um, Planescape Torment. Any any of you guys familiar with this? It, it's a PC game. It's Vaguely, a, vaguely. I, I think it's either Bioware or Obsidian. Anyway, it's an old RPG. I, I did not know anything about it at the time. I might have heard the name when it was current, um, but I never would have thought to play it. But then in the in the past few years, it came out on good old games, I think, last year. Everybody came out of the woodwork to talk about how it had the greatest story ever told in video games. And that they absolutely loved that game. And now that I'm becoming a little more familiar with Western RPGs, I've played two or three of them now. Uh, you know, I'm going through KOTOR. I feel like I'm opening up to the idea that I might be able to go back farther and farther through history of this kind of game and actually appreciate them, whereas I wouldn't have it at the time they came out. So um, I'm, I'm thinking at some point I might like to pick that up. It's kind of on the lower end of the priority scale for, for all these games that I'm going to be talking about. But uh, Yeah, on, on my list, Johnny, very much in the same vein, I have uh, Baldur's Gate. Uh, I thought of that one, too. Betrayal at Crondor is another one that I played for a little tiny bit, and it seemed really cool at the time. Oh, my God. I actually have played and beaten that game, and both its official and unofficial sequels. Yeah, it seems like it, seems like it could be cool, but it also could be completely terrible. It does not stand up well, believe me. <laughs> I mean, a, a good one on that tip, uh, I, I played, I, when I was younger, I really liked Myst, and I even really liked Riven, even though I probably shouldn't have. Because I played it on PS1, which is a terrible version of Riven. It came on five discs, and you had to swap them out <laughs> very <That's> frequently. <laughs> it wasn't even it wasn't even like a Final Fantasy style where you know you reach a certain point in the story, and now you swap out permanently to disc two or disc three. Even each disc of Riven represented like a different island. So every time you traveled to a different part of the world, uh, you had to swap discs. Oh which ended, like you're solving puzzles, collecting clues. It was ridiculous. And Riven is not a great game. But I've heard that Myst 3 and 4 and 5 actually made five Myst games in total. And I've heard that 3, 4, and 5 are pretty good, and they're a lot better than Riven. So maybe one day I might get around to playing those. It'd be kind of fun to go back and, and check them out. Um, Johnny, just uh, FYI, uh, Planescape, uh, it was done by Black Isle, and those guys effectively quit that company and formed Obsidian. Okay, so pretty much the same people. So it's buggy and full of shit like that, huh? <laughs> Truly, they've patched it out by now in the past 12 years or however no, long. No, it's, it's just, if these are the Obsidian people, they haven't. <laughs> They're working on it. Don't worry. Oh, wait, it probably just formatted your hard drive. Don't worry. All right, well, let's move into the 32-bit era, or 64, 32 well, hold and 64. Hold on, hold on. What about, what about handhelds? Can we do some handheld stuff? 
Oh, anytime you want to bring in portable stuff's good, yeah. Absolutely. Because th- those don't quite seem to mesh into generations quite well, so Well, you nicely. could still, I mean, if, if you had a Game Boy launch game, you could have gone in the in the 8-bit section, because that's when it came out chronologically. <laughs> it could have but... gone all the way to the 64-bit section, though. Yeah, I, I know, that's what's amazing about it, but uh, it's always <laughs> far away. Yeah, so I actually have one for uh, Neo Geo Pocket Color, which it's got about eight different names. All of them are Japanese because it never came out in the U.S., but I'll go with the one that Wikipedia pages use, which is Ogre Battle Legend of the Zenobia Prince. Ah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Which You've is the only Ogre that. Battle game that didn't come out in the West. And it's kind of a side story, so it's not as big as the others, but it apparently does tell, like, a real events going on alongside the Black Queen, which is kind of nice. Like, you can kind of see where these things overlap. <laughs> and there's no fan translations. Also, I don't think anybody ever bothered to write a Neo Geo Pocket Color emulator anyway. I, you know, <laughs> I bet somebody did, because people are gonzo about that system. The people who had it loved yeah. it so much. It had a clicky joystick, which for a handheld, back then, was pretty damn cool. Just having a joystick was weird. I mean, having a joystick, and it was clicky, and it was actually good for fighting games and shit like that. But let me, let me, let me put it this way. It was an ugly-as-shit-looking system. It is Ugly. It is a gray slab with a screen that looks out of proportion in the middle of it and a hideous looking joystick. But people love it. Eight people love it. Eight. And actually, before we jump full bore into the handheld space, I kind of forgot one. It's not... Well, it's 16-bit. It's not really a Super Nintendo game, but um, I got to go with Radical Dreamers. Oh, yeah, it's a Teleview. It's the text adventure sort of follow-up or graphic novel follow-up to Chrono Trigger. Chrono Trigger's my favorite game of all time. I've never played Radical Dreamers. I do not accept Chrono Cross as a valid substitute. Um, (laughs) This was a Satellaview game, so it is notoriously difficult to emulate or find or play. And... I, I'm sure there is a fan translation of oh, it. Oh, there, there is a fan translation. It was a whole episode of Retronauts about it with uh, yeah. Andrew Fitch's twin brother. Yeah, I, I don't know that I want to go through that process of playing a text adventure game with a fan translation because, like, how much of the original game is even in there anymore at that point? Is there a proper Satellaview emulator? It's really a Super Nintendo game. Satellaview was more the delivery method. Yeah, in this case, it was just sort of the delivery. I mean, there are some games in Satellaview which you kind of played live, like the Zelda right. thing. Right? Yeah, like BD Zelda, is, you really can't emulate it because they're... Yeah, it, it, it was interacting with broadcast elements, whereas yeah. I don't believe there's any such thing with Radical Dream. Yeah. Some people have actually patched together the B, the various components of BD Zelda oh, into really? a Ramba. Yeah. That's cool. Uh, I, I, it's my understanding that it, it feels really disconnected simply because stuff doesn't patch together cleanly. Hmm. Was there some sort of F-Zero thing for that? There I, was, I, yes. I would like to play that, definitely. But the thing about Radical Dreamers is, conceptually, it's almost like proto-Chrono Cross. I mean, it, it's just got a lot of the same sort of elements, uh, but doesn't have the same scope, I guess. because Right, it's, it's much more honed down than Chrono Cross, which tried to be this expansive story of the entire world at one time. So, I mean, yeah. it's almost like an alternate vision, which is kind of appropriate for Chrono Cross, of, <laughs> of what the sequel to Chrono Trigger was like in Masato Kato's head. Yeah, I mean, my, <laughs> what scares me about Radical Dreamers is that although I do really enjoy the story in Chrono Trigger, I think what I love the most about the game is the graphics and the music and the the fun battle system and exploring the world and finding all the little secrets everywhere and the magic tabs. And 
if you strip all that away, which I, you know, I don't have a radical dreamers is pretty amorphous in my mind. I don't really know I mean, what there, it there looks are, like it, to play it's, it. It's not just text. I mean, there, it's, it's a, it's a visual, visual novel. novel. So yeah. Game, yeah. And um, it's got, I've, I've not really familiar with the context, but I've just heard some yes, of the soundtrack out of context. It says pretty good. I mean, hmm. uh, obviously I just could terms of production values and how much effort went into it. It's not going to compete with Chrono Trigger soundtrack or, or any elements of it probably, but yeah. uh, it's a real curiosity. I think you could, you know, it really is. A, a, it's something that I've thought about. I didn't quite make it on my list for reasons that will become apparent probably a bit later. Well, to kind of give some some shading to what we were saying, it it tells the story of Surge, Kid, and Gil, which are characters from Chrono Cross, mm. and it's sort of told as a side story to Trigger versus Cross, which is sort of the pseudo sequel, crazy. Yeah, well, I may as well go and say, even though it's out of chronological order, Chrono Cross is on my list, even though I've so heard. Good. Enough bad things about it. It's so good. They're all wrong. I've just, always, it, well, just to like the <laughs> amount of characters and it's. Kind you of don't like, have to get every character, though. I mean, I know you don't. Know. It just, it doesn't sound like the kind of RPG that's uh, straightforward, maybe as as Chrono Trigger. Suikoden has three hundred characters. Yeah, that's Fuck. true. I but, mean, I mean, I don't really want to play Suikoden, but I mean, <laughs> it, it just is. There are things that have always put me off. But in the end, I do just want to experience it to see how it followed up on Chrono Trigger and, and experience things like the soundtrack and the visuals, which, oh, yes, it's... you can experience outside. But I do, you know, for me, with the Chrono Trigger example, the soundtrack undeniably is much more powerful in context. Yeah. And so I think Cross deserves from me the shot of putting it all in context. It's out on the PSN in America now. So if I'm willing to jump through those hoops to sort of dab it off a foreign PlayStation store, it's accessible to me now. So I don't know if it's something I'll do soon, but I'm going to do it. As I've said in the past, I earnestly believe Chrono Cross might have one of the best soundtracks ever put together for a game. I, I agree with you, but I think most of the best music is played during FMV and not during gameplay. So to me, it doesn't have quite the connection that it does in Chrono Trigger when you're actually playing the game as the awesome music rolls on. There are a handful of battle themes, especially for that last battle with... As a spoiler, I'm sorry. No, I, I already knew, but I don't know whether anyone knows. That effing battle, by the way. The tricky bit in that one is you have to get the magic color order right, which means you have to have all the colors oh, of magic. It's, that final battle is so stupid. I mean, you don't you don't have to do it. You could just kill him, but you won't get the crazy ending that makes the Xenoblade ending look rational. <laughs> I mean... <Yeah. laughs> Greg's the only person here who gets that joke. Oh, because... the, I like the Xenoblade ending. I, I think I'm looking forward so to it. So, you just you gotta love the... With Johnny, it's a gumption. You gotta love that. Yeah, yeah, it. Now, uh, let me segue to a very much the opposite end of the 32-bit era, if one could even include it, because this actually has something in common with what John said earlier about the Vectrex. So, well, one of my ones is Warrior Land for Virtual Boy. Yeah, and the, virtu- good the Virtual Boy itself is a big part of that. I've got, I've never played one. 
and someone who was following in the magazines and all that, you know, you see the red and black screenshots. Just buy it. And, and, it, and it's not terribly moving. Give it into the eBay. Those graphics don't look that great and all that, but you're always thinking, like, oh, God, I wonder what it, you know, the, the people would talk about what the 3D effect was like, yeah. uh, whether you saw it and uh, did the weird technology with the spinning mirrors and all that. You, you just, I always wanted to play one. I didn't necessarily want to own one at the time, desperately. <laughs> and, of course, I never had. But I've never even touched one. So I definitely want to just try out a Virtual Boy. And of course, the game for Virtual Boy is Wariland. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've never even seen one either. I've never even seen one. You've never oh, even dude. seen one? What, did you never go to a store? I, maybe maybe at PAX East, but I've never played one. I've no, never... actually, I haven't seen one at PAX East before. As a novelty goes, it's pretty cool. I mean, I, you know, if you guys remember a couple years ago, they had the Steel Battalion room at PAX East where you could go in and play yeah, the yeah. game that, like, nobody ever got to play because it was so ridiculous. I think there should be a Virtual Boy room at PAX East, and they could, like, there could be a there giant be. bowl of Advil in the middle. There could be like counseling for as on your way out. You know, you can go speak to someone and have them sort of reintegrate you with the real world. But I, I think that would be fantastic. Coupons for like uh, lens crafters. <laughs> lens crafters. Spon- the room is sponsored by lens crafters. Yeah, uh, but n- there actually was a multiplayer link cable for the Virtual Boy. I don't know if any games actually took advantage uh, of it. Tennis the tennis game, probably, but not. Yeah, it wouldn't have been very many. Yeah, I mean, I- I've I've always wondered if I could find someone with Virtual Boy and one of these cables <laughs> and the other game that uses it. I would be set for life. <laughs> there are there are other games. Oh, yeah, I'd be kind of interested to see Telerod Boxer and Red Alarm and all. You know, but there are I, others. Yes, but, yes. but Warrior Land is very much the one. It I, is. I, you know, at this point, I spent a decent amount of money on my Virtual Boy collection, but I don't regret it, even though I never play it. Like, <laughs> it, just just that it's there. I see it every so often and go, "Hey, how's it going?" Like, it's <laughs> it's just having it there is kind of nice. It is a thing that is in my life every so often that is that will effectively prevent me from ever having a stable relationship with a woman. <laughs> it's that. I mean, it's, it's the machine that's difficult to obtain, though. I mean, quite a few of the games are not necessarily that hard, but uh, yeah. and in my experience, anyway, getting one that works is a good nick is uh, not so easy. But I, do, I did want to reference just that these are really obvious ones that we've talked about on the show plenty of times, but just for for the record, I want to note Super Nintendo, Illusion of Gaia, which Johnny's mm. talked about quite a lot during the SNES 20. Amazing game. Uh, Demon's Crest, of course, we've talked about that plenty, and Radiant Silvergun from the 32B, oh, 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 which yeah. is now available on Xbox, but not PlayStation. Oh, that's right. We can talk about Saturn games now, can't yeah. we? Yeah, see, that, that's the thing. That would have been on my list, but I played the demo for that on 360. Yeah, so. I played the demo and decided not to buy yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, well, this is the mockery that's been visited upon me, that you, you two could try it and not even bother while I would love to try it. But. Yeah. Just buy an Xbox, Greg. They're dirt cheap now. I mean, it's it's practically made for you at this yeah, point. Yeah, I know. I mean, if it comes to it, I will do that. But probably when we're in the next generation. I've yeah, waited yeah. this long to play Radiant Silver Gun. I can wait longer. But, I, I mean, the number of downloadable titles at this point that seem tailor-made for you has got to be disconcerting. Maybe when I don't have a reason to pretend that I am in any way a well-rounded gamer that actually plays a variety <laughs> of games, then I could just indulge in that library on the Xbox Live. As a, as a very brief tangent, there is a rumor that Microsoft might be releasing a an ultra-cheap consumer-level version of Xbox with no disk drive, which would be basically made to play 
downloadable games and Netflix. And it <laughs> might be, you know, they might sell it for a hundred or a hundred and fifty dollars and, and then, and then they would sell connect stuff with it too. So, uh, there, maybe there's a model coming that's really kind of tailor made for you, Greg. Well, there it is again. So I will wait, but I am going to play that game by hook yeah. up my crook. It was one of those games that I played the demo and I thought, this is pretty cool, but it's not for me. So I have two Saturn games and a Sega CD game since the Sega CD is, is bullshit. Sega CD. Actually, James, James, I actually do have one more 16-bit. Terra Enigma is another yeah. one that I would like to play. Just throw that out there. It's an obvious one. So actually for the Sega CD, there is Snatcher, which <laughs> has become categorically way too expensive. <laughs> like apparently on eBay, it goes for some obscene amount of money. Because A, it came out at the very end of the Sega CD's lifespan, so it never really had a chance, and they didn't make many copies, and B, it was just expensive to begin with. Isn't it a kind of a graph, a visual novel like Radical Dreamers? A bit, but there is there is a little bit more in the gameplay end, I Is think. it more of an adventure game, a full-on yeah. adventure game? Yeah, it's, that's probably closer to what it is. Now, it's just the fact that somewhat secretly, it turns out Snatcher's part of the Metal Gear universe, and Kojima planned all this bullshit... 20 years ago just makes me think that he may be an evil genius and it, it delights me mm. i know at one point there was talk of a ds port that he may or may not have been working on well you know what he's doing now right well he, he he's making how do they pronounce it suda yeah so he's co so. he's co-writing it with suda 51 and they're releasing it as uh, like an audio novel like a yes they are like audio book <laughs> but only in japanese and they have de- declared explicitly that it will never be translated out of japanese uh, just just uh, <laughs> well, well to be fair because if you read something written by kojima and suda 51 without the benefit of a producer stopping them it would probably kill you. <laughs> so if they keep it in Japanese, they minimize the potential damage. Okay, so it, it, keeping it in the generation, I, I've got a, a couple I can roll off. Quickly, um, one that I have just this morbid curiosity about is Doshin the Giant 2, which was only released for 64DD. And it, it is truly one of the most bizarre games I've ever heard of. It really, the gameplay has nothing to do with the original Doshin the Giant. You're not stomping around islands, uh, you know, stepping on villagers and, and raising land up out of the ocean. Instead, Doshin has been imprisoned for some reason. Well, for stomping on villagers. And you have to deliver hearts to him to keep his spirits up. One of the ways in which you generate hearts to give to Doshin while he's trapped in the cage is by mashing on the eject button on the 64DD. Oh, yeah, you've, re- you've alluded to that before, but that's the- it's interesting it's just, to hear the uh, the full story. Hard to believe that this game is real. So yeah, I'd well, like to see it at some point, just to see it for myself. I mean, Doshin is weird enough on its own, but <laughs> boy. So my Sega Saturn games actually were Panzer Dragoon Saga. Yeah, oh yeah, that's on all of ours probably. I thought about that too. Uh, I know I know Orta came out, and it's basically a similar to Sway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's fine, yeah. Yeah, which is also hard to get, which would also be nice to play. I, yeah, I'm interested in that, too. It didn't quite... The, none of the Panzer... I played the first one at a friend, so it kind of satisfied my appetite for Panzer Dragoon just enough to keep any of those games off, but I, right. I would I would jump at it if I had the chance, because there's not that many of those games, like, really high-caliber on-rail shooters out there. Right. So, nope. I, I've got one for Greg, though, because I'm fairly certain that if this isn't on his list, it probably should be. 
it's Silhouette Mirage for the Saturn. Yeah, the I played it because I got the PlayStation version, oh, which that's right. is admittedly inferior. But it, uh, it, it doesn't have as much background details and stuff. You know, I mean, the, the, the Saturn was the superior 2D, 32-bit console. And, and Greg, you have the Japanese version, right? Japanese PSN, yeah. Because working designs infamously fucked up the American version. Yeah, right? it, it's not. So, I mean, that's the good part of the PlayStation version I have. It's not the American PlayStation version. Right. So I've played quite a lot of it. I talked a bit about it on the show. I played it some more after that. I like it a lot. The unique platform actioner with the whole color switching kind of mechanic is foreshadows Ikaruga a little bit obviously in a very different way but uh, it's worth playing yeah I would really I mean obviously I'd really like to play it on a Saturn because I Mm. mean it's the Saturn as a system is the strangest thing that may have ever happened to the industry (laughs) because I mean not only was it just released like a like a bacteria it was just like it's out everybody get down but but they, they built a 2d system like they built what may be to this day the best 2d video gaming system ever made right and then then had to retroactively slam 3d on top of it because they realized oh we've made a huge mistake and it, yeah and it did it did 3d not necessarily poorly because saga is known to be a, a fairly good looking 3d game but it, it was very difficult to do 3d on yeah Exactly. It just did it in the in a very odd way that was... you had to basically hack the system to make it work right. Yeah, <laughs> and, and it really did have some of the best 2D graphics that I mean, even now, if these were scaled to HD, would look amazing. Yeah, there's just lots of like fluid things that it could do in the background to make things look really sharp and detailed, and background imagery could move around and just look stunning. And I've seen video of Silhouette Mirage on the Saturn, which apparently has a lot more background animations and things it does and it just looks amazing there was there was one saturn game i was always interested in i didn't really have a great concept of it but it just sounded interesting was burning rangers oh yeah oh yes the firefighting game I, I understand it was really short and stuff, which I guess, you know, like back then, if you were like importing Saturn games or something, it made it not that appetizing, but it just had like a really unique concept and, and, and it was actually quite fun. So the problem is, again, you know, the theme with our list, a lot of these like Saturn games, I mean, they're because they're hard to emulate and all, I mean, there's not many of them that are resurfacing. I mean, obviously, Treasure have got, you know, Guardian Heroes and Radiant Silver Gun are two of the biggies that they've brought back for XBLA but other than that you're kind of out of luck with a lot of these Saturn games yeah yeah. I mean what's funny is I'm not sure you could emulate these Saturn games because I know the Saturn is, is notoriously difficult to emulate I've actually have it's, it was on my my old computer but I could get it again for my new one um, but there is a Saturn emulator someone linked me to and I actually found a ROM of Panzer Dragoon Saga and it ran but the interface for it is really strange. Like you kind of have to emulate putting the disc in. Um, yeah, <laughs> there, you just do some weird stuff. You have to use the disc image, so you have to like get a piece of software that emulates having a CD-ROM drive on your computer, so that you can put this disc image into it and then load that into Saturn from like the Saturn. Yeah. firmware it's really strange process that, that's how a lot of a lot of the playstation emulators work as well but what's weird is a lot of them you have to configure these things like you have to find a driver os for the the system yes. and it may some work better with some games and some work better with others it's just crazy yeah, so i mean I, I i got the game to boot up but i didn't really start playing it because i was like this is going to be a terrible experience to play it through this interface and without a controller that's functional and I just decided that that's not how I want to do it. 
you know, I, I want to I want to play it on a console the way it was meant to be played. I do feel like if Sega was competent, which we know they aren't, and they had infinite resources, which we know they don't, they'd have to basically remake these games because of the Saturn's crazy ass architecture. Hey, Treasure did it. I mean, maybe if Microsoft will throw some money Sega's way, they'll get Knights and Burning Rangers and Panzer Dragoon and all that. Right. I mean, I mean, Microsoft made the money hats rain, so it was it was kind of like yeah. that was a financed operation. Sega doesn't have that luxury. But some of these games, I think, would be really impressive to people even now because, I mean, what I played of a handful of these games, I remember thinking, wow, this Sega Saturn thing might actually catch on. And then I saw 3D games and said, wow, that's fucking ridiculous. <laughs> well, yeah. it's, I've kind yeah. of segue my picks for this era. I've kind of got another two for another double pack, uh, sort of similar to the Castlevania Contra situation because they're from the same developer and they came out the same year. And that's... Um, Space Station Silicon Valley mm. and Body Harvest for the N64. Good choice. So these are the two DMA design games. Though it goes back to the N64 episode we did a few months back. DMA design, the people that made Lemmings and that would one day go on to become Rockstar and make GTA and all that. Uh, they were a member of the Dream Team. And they were making N64 games you know, from before the system came out. And Body Harvest in particular was meant to be an early game. And uh, Nintendo actually were going to publish it. Uh, I was reading a piece on it in, a, in a, one of the magazines over here. They did a retrospective with some quite interesting facts. So Nintendo had it signed up to publish it early, and they in fact provided some assistance with the development. Uh, apparently, they were quite eager to push like RPG elements into it, yes. which right. I don't know how much because of that they didn't really- have any. Yeah, precisely. Um, it was kind of weird, you know, sort of trying to fill the vacuum of JRPGs by putting RPG elements into this game being made in Britain. <laughs> but it's fascinating because it is, you know, a really pioneering game in the open world genre. Yes. But it also kind of, from what I've read, shows a, a different view of the genre, you know, that, that hasn't really been pursued because, you know, yes, you're, you're kind of going around in these environments which are based on different time periods, aren't they? Uh, different stages in history where, yeah. which are being invaded by these mantis creatures or, you know, sort of like starship troopers, basically. And, um, you were doing objectives in this sort of, in these open worlds, but at the same time, it's much more demanding by the sound of it than sort of like GTA or whatever because you're just get waves of enemies that will come and like if they kill a certain amount of people milling around that's it you know you fail the mission so yeah you might be doing a mission over here and it's like oh that's a new objective just pops up you've got to go and save the people over there and Mm -hmm. so then you've got to get in a vehicle drive over there and hope you get there in time you know it's a more of an old school kind of sensibility rubbing up against this sort of nascent open world thing you know i'm not sure how much i would enjoy it but it just seems so fascinating it is a f- I've played it and it's a fun game. I, it didn't end up coming out till I think like 99 or 2000. It was a really It, it was 98 actually, but it, it was much later than it was originally intended to come out and that shows in the visuals. If you look at it, yeah, yeah, it looks yeah. like an early game and by 98 it was going up against things like Badger Kazooie and Ocarina of Time and you know. Yeah, it, it it was quite interesting. I mean, in some ways it reminds me of Blast Corps in the, you know, that you get the feeling of driving in all these different vehicles and they have different handling and there were multiple worlds, but they were kind of like really large levels, you know, kind of like giant versions of Blast Core levels. 
and it, and it was all done from a lower camera perspective, but it, it had a similar feeling that there was a lot of sort of driving over terrain and exploring and trying to find shortcuts to things. Um, and there was some shooting, you know, out of your vehicles. And it felt like when you got out of your vehicle, you were really kind of helpless. Although I remember there was this one item that you found in the ancient Greece stage there was a shield that projected this giant laser beam of sunlight and you could kind of point it around and you could burn enemies with it. And, and, and once you had that, you actually were powerful enough that you could kind of wander around on foot and deal with enemies, even without a vehicle. The problem was you were so slow that I always got that and I wanted to use it, but then I would like lose the mission because I was no longer <laughs> traveling fast enough to get to the places I needed to go. Um, <laughs> it, it's a very clunky game in some ways. It was almost just too ambitious. You know, it, the, the game couldn't really do what they wanted to do with it, but very interesting. And I think in terms of just the, the feel of it would still be fun to play. I really think so. I mean, I thought the vehicles were controlled in a very interesting way. I mean, I don't know. I've never been that fond of the open world genre, you know, <laughs> but at the same time, in some ways, because it lacks some of the things that this game has, you know, and some of those actual demands. Right. They're, they're too amorphous. Yeah, they, I, I like games giving me direction and, and, and you know, asking things of me. Uh, so I, it's kind of could go either way. On the one hand, it could be a more of a kind of open world game than I can get into. Or on the other hand, perhaps when you put that into an open world game, I, I really dislike it. I don't know. <laughs> but I'd like to find out. And, and the thing with Space Station Silicon Valley which was an, their other N64 game. It actually ended up coming out about the same time, but I think it was developed you know, somewhat later. It wasn't a project that kind of hung around the way the Body Harvest did, which ultimately Nintendo cut ties and said, look, they're doing their own thing, and it became something a bit different. But Space Station Silicon Valley, as I recall, is a platformer of sorts, but you are this little microchip, and you're kind of hijacking all these animal robots that yeah. have different abilities and you can, you know, combining those different abilities to achieve sort of puzzle like objectives and things. So it sounds like a really cool take on a 3D platformer that's much more sort of puzzle driven. I've played this one too. Yeah. And it is very cool. I, I wasn't very good at it, as I recall. It's very puzzly and I think I just kind of reached a point where I wasn't sure how to proceed. And this was back, you know, I didn't have game facts. I didn't have the internet back then. So I just kind of reached a point where I couldn't figure out what to do next and I couldn't get past it. But, uh, I thought the game was really cool. It had a very similar feel to like Mario 64 in that you had these big 3D levels. It wasn't like a world. They were levels essentially, like different floors of the space station, but they were big and there were a lot of different sections of them, you know, different elevations. And it was all like, how do I get up to there? What animal do I have to attack and then inhabit and control in order to get up there? And you had, you know, all the, all these like robotic animals, you had frogs that could jump really high. You had you had birds that, that turned into missiles and you could fly around in them. And it was all this one grand experiment of traversing a 3D environment. You know, just one of these amazingly ambitious games where someone said, wow, with this new hardware, we can make 3D worlds. What will we do with that? And they just thought of something that was far more creative than you see today. And, uh, and again, yeah. the game probably was a little problematic, but I thought it was just magical when I played it. And I always wanted to play more of it. Yeah, it's interesting. It it, it reminds me of a, an old Commodore 64 game called Paradroid, in which, and I think it was actually done by a British game company. Now that I think about it, 
in which your goal was to take over a spaceship by taking over more powerful robots. So in other words, you would take over like Model 001, and then you would use Model 002 to take over 005 and 10 and 20. And it's just very, very much like that. Very fun. Very fun. But yeah, I like always remember like... the way it was described in reviews as kind of like moving up the food chain, basically, yes, yeah. you know, as, as you went along. And, yep. and you know, it always sounded cool to me, uh, but it, it was just N64 games importing them was so expensive. Yeah. Well, buying them was expensive. I just imagine importing them was ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. As cool as it was, almost because it sounded so different, yeah. the conservatism when you haven't got a lot of money to spend sets in. And so it's like, well, maybe I'll get around to it later. And then, of course, you never do. Right. And because the N64 virtual console has been so pitifully limited, uh, that certainly hasn't been a way to experience these games. But I'd, I definitely want to get at least one of them. Yeah. eventually ideally both i think probably space station silicon valley with the puzzle element sounds the most appealing it probably holds up a little better than body harvest but they're both fascinating games and very much worth checking out so in that same era i've also got um very quickly i'll just mention vagrant story which i actually have owned on psn for almost a year and still have not turned on so that's one of the games <laughs> I'm hoping to get around to playing during my little New Year's resolution period here in the next couple of months. People talk mad game about it. You know, they just love that game. Yeah. Uh, I got incredible reviews. When it came out, it was incredibly reviewed. Yeah. It was one of the perfect score for Mitsu games back when that was less regular. Right. Yeah. But uh, another PS1 game that is not available on the network, and even if it was, I probably wouldn't buy it. But I do, I do want to play the game in some fashion one day. Is Dragon Quest VII the only numbered Dragon Quest game I have not played? And it is notoriously gigantic and bloated and slow and just. Like a lot, lots of elements of a good game in there, but it was a case of Enix just kind of just going way overboard and, and making a game that only the most ridiculously devoted Dragon Quest fans could really appreciate. So this is a game where I'm really waiting for a remake. And I think it is bound to happen. I mean, if you look at their track yeah, record for the series, it's, they, this is really one of the few games they have not remade. So, it has to happen. I want someone to tighten it up, not just refresh the graphics, but make the game better. You know, fix some of the things that people don't like about it, and I would love to play it. Yep. Um, one that I have uh, on the PS1, I'm pretty sure Greg has this. It's on the Japanese uh, PSN, but not. it's never been released uh, over here, uh, is Einhander, which is Ooh. a scrolling shooter developed by Square. It's quite good. Yeah, it came out back in 98. I played it. I, I, re- I remember renting it because it did come out in America originally, you know, on disc. And right. uh, it, yep. it's very cool. I, I don't know that I can appreciate it, you know, as much as you guys because I don't like side-scrolling shoot-em-ups quite as much as you and Greg it's do. A, it's a weird one. I mean, it, for me, I've played quite a number of those and there's there's quite a few good ones. Polygonal graphic side-scrolling shooters from that era. You know, so Thunder Force and R-Type, and they all had ones like this where it's side-scrolling, but it's made out of polygonal graphics. So, uh, they're a bit too chunky for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's rough. It's not the same as weaving in tight spaces in a in an old-fashioned Gradius game or something. I mean, it doesn't mean it's not playable or it's not good. I, mean, I still like them, but there's something about it, and it's, yeah, some of it's just what you're used to, what you kind of grew up on in that genre, especially. Uh, but I, I, it doesn't quite click with me the same way. There is one, it's not on my list, but uh, Gradius Gaiden 
is one of the few 32-bit era shooters in the big series that bucked that trend and stayed sprite-based. And a lot of people think it's one of the best uh, Gradius games, perhaps even rivaling five. Mm. So, I mean, that's another one that's absent from PSN in any region, for whatever reason, that I would like to try. You can get it on the portable collection for PSP. Hmm. Interesting. So, uh, James, do you have anything else from this era or any more other handheld games? Uh, I don't. For the N64, I, I had a very comprehensive collection, so I actually did pretty well for myself, unfortunately. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I'm, I'm all tapped out. Actually, I'm, I'm, I'm all tapped out for the list. I don't think I have anything from the later generations, uh, but, uh, if you guys do, let's roll through them fairly quickly well, here. Well, later on, you know, uh, just the more, the greater number of, uh, sort of vendors for games, and, you know, there were a lot more available in general. And there's a lot more information out there, too, so you can become aware of these games. Yeah, we're hitting the internet age here in our march through time, so it. Games are hard to hide. Exactly. So there are, there, there's a lot more cases where I did end up you know if i didn't get something right away i still you know managed to stay on top of it and snap it up eventually but there's one portable game that seems like i would absolutely love it to bits and i remember it getting good reviews and i thought i'll have to get that and i never did and you cannot get it not quite literally for love nor money but it's it's damn close ninja 5-0 yeah (laughs) yeah it's a good pick Dream the impossible dream, Greg. <laughs> it's it, it that thing is you know it's so hard to get as a cartridge, and it has been for years. And I imagine it's not getting any easier. Uh, but it it's got such a great reputation, and you're this you know ninja character. You've got magic and projectiles, and grappling you've got hook. a grappling hook thing, and all. I mean, it seems so cool. Uh, you know, as a kind of homage to some of those sort of similar games that the uh, this came out in 2003, so it was kind of a throwback back then but obviously a lot of gba games were like that but this was original Mm -hmm. and seems really great and you're pretty much at this point you're hoping that uh, kind of johnny mentioned with final fantasy 5 you know that that there's going to be a gba virtual console on the 3ds eShop, and we actually get i think with konami involved and they're actually going to put this thing up so it's not (laughs) the odds aren't good let's put it that way it's It's, not they're not great there's a lot of if statements there (laughs) stranger things have happened but maybe that's what i've got a bank on but it just seems really cool and uh, i'm so sad i didn't get this i have a gamecube game yeah and and this is gonna get john laughing because john has the maturity of a (laughs) four-year-old The, the GameCube game that I played in a Nintendo GameCube demo disc, the ones that you split up in stores, which is really shocking this got on there, is Ultimate Muscle Legends vs. New Generation. Oh my wow. god. <laughs> like muscle, like the little characters. The, the little... little rubber dudes with the weird shapes, yeah. I, I, I've heard good things about this, James. It's When I played the demo at the store, it was hilariously over the top. There was just crazy shit going on all the time. The characters were all ridiculous looking. One of them had like a fish head. <laughs> like you'd pick somebody up to body slam them and instead you'd get like a 20 second animation of you flying in the air, spiraling them around them, <laughs> throwing them at the ground to giant explosions. For some reason this reminds me I really should have put Wild Woody on this. Oh, there you go. <laughs> Wild Woody. Jeez. Perfect. But I just remember that demo being really cool and then thinking I could never ask for that game because I would be so embarrassed. <laughs> All right, um, I I have yet to come back to my Atari Jaguar game, which was Tempest 2000. Yes. Yeah, that's it. That's the one I was thinking of, yeah. Because every other game on the Atari Jaguar was terrible. 
pretty much terrible. Yeah, so this one was like held up as, oh, wow, look, the Atari Jaguar can actually have really good games. <laughs> Even the games Atari held up as good games were terrible. Well, Je- Jeff Minter is kind of famous for picking terrible platforms. I mean, there's a, meant to be a very, very good sequel to this called Tempest 3000 for the Nuon. That is the only platform it was ever released oh on. Oh, my God. The fucking wow. Nuon. Yes. I had forgotten the Nuon was a thing. <laughs> yeah. It only had like five games, but Tempest 3000 was one of them, and very much like the Jaguar version, it was supposed to be quite good. I've always wanted to try playing like one of those first-person shooters on there, like Alien vs. Predator or whatever, with that controller. I, just, I have <laughs> yeah. to see how that works. That I mean, does, it, does is... it need a ColecoVision overlay to do that? Or... <laughs> oh, no, man. you need the television overlays. Our, our, Johnny, for the sake of our research, and because I can't remember how to spell it for our listeners, do we spell Nuon for them? Because I remember it had some <clears> dumbass <throat> spelling. It's N-U-O-N. It was, yeah, a, it was it. a DVD player that had a kind of built-in processor for playing games as well. So it had some yeah. kind of weird-ass weird controller that it came with. And so the idea was that they would license out the game part of it to a lot of different DVD manufacturers so that it would right. become sort of a bonus thing that you would get when you bought a DVD player. But it, it didn't work very well. It wasn't really well-made. I, I, as a marketing idea, I, it makes sense, but it was poorly done. All right, well, some other ones I have uh, for the N64, of course, Majora's Mask is in my Hall of Shame. have oh, yet dude, to beat John, it. John, do you have Club Nintendo points? Yes, I do. You can get Majora's Mask for free right now with your Club Nintendo coins. Yes, you can. And you should. I will do that. Because we might want to talk about that game on this show in the future. Yeah, from and from the sublime to the ridiculous, also, I want to play the monstrosity that is Superman 64. You are <laughs> you are a philosopher and a gentleman. Nice. But but let's let's be be clear. I have played Superman 64 and I've played Aquaman on the GameCube. Which which which, which makes me know one thing. One thing decisively. DC Comics is terrible, and everyone involved should have been fired decades ago. So, James, I remember <laughs> being at the E3 demo for Aquaman. <laughs> oh, God! And the poor guy, a very nice guy, uh, who was giving me the tour, but it was all I could do to not insult him at that <laughs> demo. I mean, I was like, get me the fuck out. What is this shit? I played it. I played that game. It's terrible. Okay, so we we have come to Nuon and Aquaman. Does anyone <laughs> yeah. have any good games left that they want to bring up? I could take us out of like, the couple of recent ones. Yeah, I have a couple of recent ones as well. I'll do one more before I, I let y'all take it out, which is Dokupon Kingdom. Oh, which, yeah. Oh, yeah, the, the Mario Party-ish game. James, I want to play this game with you specifically. I know, it's just I can't get a chance to get people together to play it, although I've got one coming up. Well, <laughs> yes, so PAX or E3 or something, bring that shit, we will carve out an evening, because I want to fucking play that with you, for sure. It's like, everything I hear about that game is that if you get people together who know RPGs, this is the most fun you will ever have in a game ever. Yeah. No, well, <laughs> after our little experiment with Half Minute Hero online multiplayer, which was insane in the best way... Yeah, uh, I I definitely want to do that. Awesome. Well, one of my recent examples is if 
if they can ever get that Captain Rainbow fan translation finished. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, God, that. yes. Because you know, you're missing out. Or if you can't copy, that seems to be a lot of the appeal of the game is you know, just how bizarre these <laughs> repartee between Birdo and Fat Little Mac and the Advance Wars soldiers. And, you know, that, <laughs> so. yeah, it, it makes no sense. Like I've seen it played before and just gone, I... I don't expect it to make sense with a perfectly cogent fan translation, but I think I would at least get the joke a little more. Right. Uh, you know, I mean, I managed to make my way through the Japanese version of Chibi Robo because there's very extensive kind of like written translation guides. But I don't really think there's quite the same thing for Captain Rainbow, and it wouldn't. You, you lose a bit of something. I think it would mean oh, a lot. In Chibi Robo, certainly, I think you probably did miss out on part of the, the charm of that game. Yeah, but I mean, a lot of the jokes in that in that game are just visual. Like you're seeing the jokes. I mean, uh, yeah, the, with the, this, this is you know the the in jokes and all that. I mean, but I don't, the point is, I did that with Chibi Robo. I still really enjoyed the game. I, I like that a lot. But I don't want to do that again. Yeah, with the uh, Captain Rainbow, I think I'd like to work uh, if that fan translation can get all working and everything. I'd love to do that. And then another Japanese Wii game, though, perfectly within. I've had the capability to get it and play it, but it's a bit expensive. Maybe I'll get it cheaper one day, or maybe I'll just sort of pony up the money. Uh, but uh, Zangeki no Reginlev, yes. There, a lot of people compare it to Earth Defense Force, which I've never played. So that's one but of the Earth reasons. Earth Defense Force with swords, with with Norse mythology. Yeah, it's uh, big you know. phallic Earth Defense Force, and it's a motion plus game, which yes! is a rarity. Uh, but you know, it, it's basically you know an Earth Defense Force kind of ridiculous, massive battles in open fields with all different kinds of weapons. And you know, if you watch videos of it, you could see it might look a bit sort of rough at times, but it's got like enemies that are just as big. Bigger skyscrapers being felled by one giant slash of this ridiculous <laughs> oh, it's, weapon. It, the trailer for Zekakino Regenlev is the most amazing thing I have ever seen. I mean, it it is just this sort of wall-to-wall batshit insanity that, that just makes everything feel good in the world. Yeah, I, I always I was following it before it came out, and of course I had a Japanese Wii, I didn't even have to worry about it, homebrew or anything like that, but because I'd played Earth Defense Force... And because the the murmurings on the forums and stuff where people had actually played it were not necessarily like overwhelmingly positive, I just thought, oh well, it'll probably get cheaper at some point. Mm. And it really hasn't. No. Uh, I think I, mean, I think you could still get it, but it would cost quite a bit. But as we come to the end of the Wii's life cycle, and there's not a lot coming out, it's getting uh, increasingly tempting. And I just think I I want to see it. I want to play it because it's so mental. It does have that beautiful black Wii box too. Like it that. does with the foil because oh, it's M rated. Yeah. Oh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> That's a it's rare got commodity. <laughs> and, and the other thing is, uh, since it came out, I did play Sandlot's DS game, which is the Mecha game, the Chosoju right. Mecha MG, and that is really good. It was quite a different game, but it certainly gives me confidence that these guys know what they're doing. Cool, John. Uh, yeah, my last couple of ones uh, would be uh, Valkyria Chronicles for PS3. Yeah. Mm. Oh, dude, that is some sweet, sweet sugar. Yeah, and uh, the other one is probably not as sweet, sweet sugar, but Elder Scrolls Oblivion. Uh, it's Oblivion. just one that I've kind of... Oblivion, the one that's been out for almost six years. Yeah, yeah. well, that's that's part of the reason. It's because I was like, man, I want to play that. And I kind of was like, I want to play that, I want to play that. And I just kept saying that and saying that. And that's no, you, never... Didn't you buy Oblivion twice and not play it? Wasn't that your position? <laughs> that, that may have happened. I will neither confirm nor deny that. <laughs> 
John, you will never have time to play Oblivion. I mean, it's just... That's the thing. It's beca- it, like, for me, it's been kind of like, it's become that running joke for me personally. Like, I, I may or may not own that game twice on the PC <laughs> and the 360. I don't know. Again, I cannot confirm nor deny that. But it's been sitting on my shelf oh, in my. one form or another for years, and it's just, like, ridiculous. It's like the ultimate in my buy a game that I'll never play stupidity, so... Yeah, since, since we're going to d- allow the discussion of imports, I have two that I will take care of in three to five weeks because I wanted to get over a certain level when I bought the last story so I could get the promo code in there. So All I right. secured copies of Tingle's Magical Rose-Colored Rupee Land and Disaster Day of Crisis. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. There's, there's a teaser for everyone. I will be taking care of business in the next month. That's excellent. The, the business of homoeroticism. <laughs> well, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus, John. That's not business for John. That's pleasure. Right on, bro. Right on, bro fist. Right on. <laughs> Where's that hand been? <laughs> All right. So uh, that's going to wrap up our rather lengthy feature on the video game bucket lists. Uh, of course, these are deeply personal lists. I hope you enjoyed listening deeply to us. Deeply personal. Uh, but I, we would love to hear what's on your bucket list. Absolutely. I think it would be fun to hear from listeners as well. Um, maybe there are games that we would be shocked that you've never played. I think probably a couple of those came up tonight. Or, or just really interesting games that you've kind of heard of and you've always wanted to play but didn't have a, a way to do so. It's fun to talk about, so get it out of your system. You can send those emails to rfn at nintendoworldreport.com or check the show notes for a link to a handy web form. You can do it there as well. So before we go, I do want to let everybody know that next week we shall indeed be discussing Fire Emblem the Sacred Stones for our retroactive feature. It's a really cool game. You might already have a copy of it on your 3DS if you're in the Ambassador program, and there's still time for you to uh, check it out and, and play the first few chapters and join in the discussion. The forum thread remains open. There's a lot going on in there, and you can get some handy tips in there as well if you get stuck. There is a at least one section of the game that gets pretty rough, I think. So good to go in there. And it's uh, like Ogre Battle is a game that the more you read about it, the more you realize you don't really know what you're doing. (laughs) (laughs) You don't know. It's a very deep game, that's for sure. But but very accessible as well, and I would encourage you to participate. So we'll be talking about that next week and pulling uh, quotes out of the forum thread. So looking forward to that. And, uh, and a couple of plugs for our sister podcast. We just had a brand new episode of Famicast go up on this very feed. So you might have already downloaded it, but make sure you do listen to it. It's a lot of fun. And, uh, there's a new connectivity out this week. And if the timing works out, I should be on that episode playing NWR Jeopardy. I've been wanting to do it for a while. Some of our listeners, uh, may remember that I won uh, the old Planet Trivia game, the day before I joined staff back in 2000. So it's been a very long time since I've been allowed to participate in a real competitive trivia game. Yeah, because staff can't win Jeopardy, Aaron. In fact, it has been over 11 years since the last time I was allowed to participate in a real competitive trivia game for this website. And so you'll have to tune in to Connectivity to see how I did. But... uh I did pretty well. So, <laughs> <laughs> conceit alert. I hope you will check that out as well. Yeah, I think conceit alert is probably the more accurate statement. <laughs> I couldn't. By the way, I just my... happen to know everything about Nintendo. You know, you know, Mr. Nintendo. I met him. 
<laughs> Wait until you hear the segment. Um, <laughs> I, I really hammed it up big on there. Uh, but no, that's good Shock. fun, so be sure to check that out as well. And uh, I think that's going to do it for us, folks. Uh, so uh, please tune in next week, and uh, we're out. Bye. Bye-bye. Later. Some DVDs apparently had nuon stuff in them, like Planet of the Apes. Really? And uh, <laughs> the Tim Burton Planet of the Apes. Uh, I believe so. Ooh. Yeah. And the even more reason to not buy that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, and Doctor Doolittle too. Oh, Only four God. DVDs ever. God. Four. Oh. And eight games, and one of them was Space Invader. <laughs>